Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. The Don had taken off his jacket and tie and was lying down on the couch. His stern face was relaxed into lines of fatigue. He waved Hagen into a chair. Well, Consigliere, do you disapprove of any of my deeds today? Hagen took his time answering. No, but I don't find it consistent nor true to your nature. You say you don't want to find out how Santino was killed or want vengeance for it. I don't believe that. You gave your word for peace, and so you'll keep the peace. But I can't believe you will give your enemies the victory they seem to have won today. You've constructed a magnificent riddle that I can't solve. So how can I approve or disapprove? A look of content came over the Don's face. Well, you know me better than anyone else. Even though you're not a Sicilian, I made you one. Everything you say is true, but there's a solution, and you'll comprehend it before it spins out to the end. You agree everyone has to take my word, and I'll keep my word, and I want my orders obeyed exactly. But, Tom, the most important thing is we have to get Michael home as soon as possible. Make that first in your mind and in your work. Explore all the legal alleys. I don't care how much money you have to spend. It has to be foolproof when he comes home. Consult the best lawyers on criminal law. I'll give you the names of some judges who'll give you a private audience. Until that time, we have to guard against all treacheries. Like you, I'm not worried so much about the real evidence as the evidence they will manufacture. Also, some police friend may kill Michael after he's arrested. They may kill him in his cell or have one of the prisoners do it. As I see it, we can't even afford to have him arrested or accused. Don Corleone sighed. I know, I know. That's the difficulty. But we can't take too long. There are troubles in Sicily. The young fellows over there don't listen to their elders anymore. And a lot of the men deported from America are just too much for the old-fashioned Dons to handle. Michael could get caught in between. I've taken some precautions against that, and he's still got a good cover, but that cover won't last forever. That's one of the reasons I had to make the peace. Barzini has friends in Sicily, and they were beginning to sniff Michael's trail. That gives you one of the answers to your riddle. I had to make the peace to ensure my son's safety. There was nothing else to do. Hagen didn't bother asking the Don how he had gotten this information. He was not even surprised. And it was true that this solved part of the riddle. When I meet with Tatalia's people to firm up the details, should I insist that all his drug middlemen be clean? The judges will be a little skittish about giving light sentences to a man with a record. Don Corleone shrugged. They should be smart enough to figure that out themselves. Mention it. Don't insist. We'll do our best, but if they use a real snowbird and he gets caught, we won't lift a finger. We'll just tell them nothing can be done... But Barzini is a man who will know that without being told. You notice how he never committed himself in this affair? One might never have known he was in any way concerned. That is a man who doesn't get caught on the losing side. Hagen was startled. You mean he was behind Solazzo and Tatalia all the time? Don Corleone sighed. Tatalia is a pimp. He could never have outfought Santino. That's why I don't have to know about what happened. It's enough to know that Barzini had a hand in it. Hagen let this sink in. The Don was giving him clues. But there was something very important left out. Hagen knew what it was, but he knew it was not his place to ask. 
He said goodnight and turned to go. The Don had a last word for him. Remember, use all your wits for a plan to bring Michael home. And one other thing. Arrange with the telephone man so that every month I get a list of all the telephone calls made and received by Clemenza and Tessio. I suspect them of nothing. I would swear they would never betray me. But there's no harm in knowing any little thing that may help us before the event. Hagen nodded and went out. He wondered if the Don was keeping a check on him also in some way, and then was ashamed of his suspicion. But now he was sure that in the subtle and complex mind of the Godfather, a far-ranging plan of action was being initiated that made the day's happenings no more than a tactical retreat. And there was that one dark fact that no one mentioned, that he himself had not dared to ask, that Don Corleone ignored. All pointed to a day of reckoning in the future. Chapter 21 But it was to be nearly another year before Don Corleone could arrange for his son Michael to be smuggled back into the United States. During that time, the whole family racked their brains for suitable schemes. Even Carlo Rizzi was listened to, now that he was living in the mall with Connie. During that time, they had a second child, a boy. But none of the schemes met with the Don's approval. Finally, it was the Bocchicchio family, who, through a misfortune of its own, solved the problem. There was one Bocchicchio, a young cousin of no more than 25 years of age, named Felix, who was born in America, and with more brains than anyone in the clan had ever had before. He had refused to be drawn into the family garbage-hauling business and married a nice American girl of English stock to further his split from the clan. He went to school at night to become a lawyer and worked during the day as a civil service post office clerk. During that time, he had three children, but his wife was a prudent manager and they lived on his salary until he got his law degree. Now, Felix Bocchicchio, like many young men, thought that having struggled to complete his education and master the tools of his profession, his virtue would automatically be rewarded and he would earn a decent living. This proved not to be the case. Still proud, he refused all help from his clan. But a lawyer friend of his, a young man well-connected and with a budding career in a big law firm, talked Felix into doing him a little favor. It was very complicated, seemingly legal, and had to do with a bankruptcy fraud. It was a million-to-one shot against its being found out. Felix Bocchicchio took the chance. Since the fraud involved using the legal skills he had learned in a university, it seemed not so reprehensible and, in an odd way, not even criminal. To make a foolish story short, the fraud was discovered. The lawyer friend refused to help Felix in any manner, refused to even answer his telephone calls. The two principals in the fraud, shrewd, middle-aged businessmen who furiously blamed Felix Bocchicchio's legal clumsiness for the plan going awry, pleaded guilty and cooperated with the state, naming Felix Bocchicchio as the ringleader of the fraud and claiming he had used threats of violence to control their business and force them to cooperate with him in his fraudulent schemes. Testimony was given that linked Felix with uncles and cousins in the Bocchicchio clan who had criminal records for strong arm, and this evidence was damning. The two businessmen got off with suspended sentences. Felix Bocchicchio was given a sentence of one to five years and served three of them. The clan did not ask help from any of the families or Don Corleone because Felix had refused to ask their help and had to be taught a lesson. That mercy comes only from the family, that the family is more loyal and more to be trusted than society. In any case, Felix Bocchicchio was released from prison after serving three years, went home and kissed his wife and three children, and lived peacefully for a year, and then showed that he was of the Bocchicchio clan after all. Without any attempt to conceal his guilt, 
he procured a weapon, a pistol, and shot his lawyer friend to death. He then searched out the two businessmen and calmly shot them, both through the head as they came out of a luncheonette. He left the bodies lying in the street and went into the luncheonette and ordered a cup of coffee, which he drank while he waited for the police to come and arrest him. His trial was swift and his judgment merciless. A member of the criminal underworld had cold-bloodedly murdered state witnesses who had sent him to the prison he richly deserved. It was a flagrant flouting of society, and for once, the public, the press, the structure of society, and even soft-headed and soft-hearted humanitarians were united in their desire to see Felix Bocchicchio in the electric chair. The governor of the state would no more grant him clemency than the officials of the pound spare a mad dog, which was the phrase of one of the governor's closest political aides. The Bocchicchio clan, of course, would spend whatever money was needed for appeals to higher courts. They were proud of him now, but the conclusion was certain. After the legal falderal, which might take a little time, Felix Bocchicchio would die in the electric chair. It was Hagen who brought this case to the attention of the Don at the request of one of the Bocchicchios, who hoped that something could be done for the young man. Don Corleone curtly refused. He was not a magician. People asked him the impossible. But the next day, the Don called Hagen into his office and had him go over the case in the most intimate detail. When Hagen was finished, Don Corleone told him to summon the head of the Bocchicchio clan to the mall for a meeting. What happened next had the simplicity of genius. Don Corleone guaranteed to the head of the Bocchicchio clan that the wife and children of Felix Bocchicchio would be rewarded with a handsome pension. The money for this would be handed over to the Bocchicchio clan immediately. In turn... Felix must confess to the murder of Salazzo and the police captain, McCluskey. There were many details to be arranged. Felix Bocchicchio would have to confess convincingly. That is, he would have to know some of the true details to confess to. Also, he must implicate the police captain in narcotics. Then, the waiter at the Luna restaurant must be persuaded to identify Felix Bocchicchio as the murderer. This would take some courage, as the description would change radically. Felix Bocchicchio being much shorter and heavier... But Don Corleone would attend to that. Also, since the condemned man had been a great believer in higher education and a college graduate, he would want his children to go to college. And so, a sum of money would have to be paid by Don Corleone that would take care of the children's college. Then, the Bocchicchio clan had to be reassured that there was no hope for clemency on the original murders. The new confession, of course, would seal the man's already almost certain doom. Everything was arranged, the money paid and suitable contact made with the condemned man so that he could be instructed and advised. Finally, the plan was sprung, and the confession made headlines in all the newspapers. The whole thing was a huge success. But Don Corleone, cautious as always, waited until Felix Bocchicchio was actually executed four months later before finally giving the command that Michael Corleone could return home. Chapter 22 Lucy Mancini, a year after Sonny's death, still missed him terribly, grieved for him more fiercely than any lover in any romance. And her dreams were not the insipid dreams of a schoolgirl, her longings not the longings of a devoted wife. She was not rendered desolate by the loss of her life's companion, or miss him because of his stalwart character. She held no fond remembrances of sentimental gifts, of girlish hero worship, his smile, the amused glint of his eyes when she said something endearing or witty. No, she missed him for the more important reason that he had been the only man in the world who could make her body achieve the act of love. And in her youth and innocence, she still believed that he was the only man who could possibly do so. Now, a year later, she sunned herself in the balmy Nevada air. At her feet, the slender, blonde young man was playing with her toes. 
They were at the side of the hotel pool for the Sunday afternoon, and despite the people all around them, his hand was sliding up her bare thigh. Oh, Jules, stop. I thought doctors at least weren't as silly as other men. Jules grinned at her. I'm a Las Vegas doctor. He tickled the inside of her thigh and was amazed how just a little thing like that could excite her so powerfully. It showed on her face, though she tried to hide it. She was really a very primitive, innocent girl. Then why couldn't he make her come across? He had to figure that one out. And never mind the crap about a lost love that could never be replaced. This was living tissue here under his hand, and living tissue required other living tissue. Dr. Jules Siegel decided he would make the big push tonight at his apartment. He'd wanted to make her come across without any trickery, but if trickery there had to be, he was the man for it. All in the interest of science, of course, and besides, this poor kid was dying for it. Jules, stop. Please, stop. Her voice was trembling. Jules was immediately contrite. Okay, honey. He put his head in her lap, and using her soft thighs as a pillow, he took a little nap. He was amused at her squirming, the heat that registered from her loins, and when she put her hand on his head to smooth his hair, he grasped her wrist playfully and held it lover-like. But really, to feel her pulse, it was galloping. He'd get her tonight and he'd solve the mystery, what the hell ever it was. Fully confident, Dr. Jules Siegel fell asleep. Lucy watched the people around the pool. She could never have imagined her life would change so in less than two years. She never regretted her foolishness at Connie Corleone's wedding. It was the most wonderful thing that had ever happened to her, and she lived it over and over again in her dreams, as she lived over and over again the months that followed. Sonny had visited her once a week, sometimes more, never less. The days before she saw him again, her body was in torment. Their passion for each other was of the most elementary kind, undiluted by poetry or any form of intellectualism. It was love of the coarsest nature, a fleshly love, a love of tissue for opposing tissue. When Sonny called to tell her he was coming, she made certain there was enough liquor in the apartment and enough food for supper and breakfast, because usually he would not leave until late the next morning. He wanted his fill of her as she wanted her fill of him. He had his own key, and when he came in the door, she would fly into his massive arms. They would both be brutally direct, brutally primitive. During their first kiss, they would be fumbling at each other's clothing, and he would be lifting her in the air, and she would be wrapping her legs around his huge thighs. They would be making love standing up in the foyer of her apartment as if they had to repeat their first act of love together, and then he would carry her so to the bedroom. They would lie in bed making love. They would live together in the apartment for 16 hours, completely naked. She would cook for him, enormous meals. Sometimes he would get phone calls, obviously about business, but she never even listened to the words. She would be too busy toying with his body, fondling it, kissing it, burying her mouth in it. Sometimes, when he got up to get a drink and he walked by her, she couldn't help reaching out to touch his naked body, hold him, make love to him as if those special parts of his body were a plaything, a specially constructed, intricate, but innocent toy, revealing its known but still surprising ecstasies. At first, she had been ashamed of these excesses on her part, but soon saw that they pleased her lover, that her complete sensual enslavement to his body flattered him. In all this, there was an animal innocence. They were happy together. When Sonny's father was gunned down in the street, she understood for the first time that her lover might be in danger. Alone in her apartment, she did not weep. She wailed aloud, an animal wailing. When Sonny did not come to see her for almost three weeks, she subsisted on sleeping pills, liquor, and her own anguish. The pain she felt was physical pain. Her body ached. When he finally did come, she held onto his body at almost every moment. After that, he came at least once a week until he was killed. 
She learned of his death through the newspaper accounts, and that very same night she took a massive overdose of sleeping pills. For some reason, instead of killing, the pills made her so ill that she staggered out into the hall of her apartment and collapsed in front of the elevator door, where she was found and taken to the hospital. Her relationship to Sonny was not generally known, so her case received only a few inches in the tabloid newspapers. It was while she was in the hospital that Tom Hagen came to see her and console her. It was Tom Hagen who arranged a job for her in Las Vegas, working in the hotel run by Sonny's brother, Freddie. It was Tom Hagen who told her that she would receive an annuity from the Corleone family, that Sonny had made provisions for her. He had asked her if she was pregnant, as if that were the reason for her taking the pills, and she had told him no. He asked her if Sonny had come to see her that fatal night or had called that he would come to see her, and she told him no, that Sonny had not called, that she was always home waiting for him when she finished working, and she had told Hagen the truth. He's the only man I could ever love. I can't love anybody else. She saw him smile a little, but he also looked surprised. Do you find that so unbelievable? Wasn't he the one who brought you home when you were a kid? He was a different person. He grew up to be a different kind of man. Not to me. Maybe to everybody else, but not to me. She was still too weak to explain how Sonny had never been anything but gentle with her. He had never been angry with her, never even irritable or nervous. Hagen made all the arrangements for her to move to Las Vegas. A rented apartment was waiting. He took her to the airport himself, and he made her promise that if she ever felt lonely or if things didn't go right, she would call him and he would help her in any way he could. Before she got on the plane, she asked him hesitantly, Does Sonny's father know what you're doing? Hagen smiled. I'm acting for him as well as myself. He's old-fashioned in these things, and he would never go against the legal wife of his son. But he feels that you were just a young girl, and Sonny should have known better. And your taking all those pills shook everybody up. He didn't explain how incredible it was to a man like the Don that any person should try suicide. Now, after nearly 18 months in Las Vegas, she was surprised to find herself almost happy. Some night she dreamed about Sonny, and lying awake before dawn continued her dream with her own caresses until she could sleep again. She had not had a man since. But the life in Vegas agreed with her. She went swimming in the hotel pool, sailed on Lake Mead, and drove through the desert on her day off. She became thinner, and this improved her figure. She was still voluptuous, but more in the American than the old Italian style. She worked in the public relations section of the hotel as a receptionist and had nothing to do with Freddie, though when he saw her he would stop and chat a little. She was surprised at the change in Freddie. He had become a ladies' man, dressed beautifully, and seemed to have a real flair for running a gambling resort. He controlled the hotel side, something not usually done by casino owners. With the long, very hot summer seasons, or perhaps his more active sex life, he too had become thinner, and Hollywood tailoring made him look almost debonair in a deadly sort of way. It was after six months that Tom Hagen came out to see how she was doing. She had been receiving a check for $600 a month, every month, in addition to her salary. Hagen explained that this money had to be shown as coming from someplace and asked her to sign complete powers of attorney so that he could channel the money properly. He also told her that as a matter of form, she would be listed as owner of five points in the hotel in which she worked. She would have to go through all the legal formalities required by the Nevada laws, but everything would be taken care of for her, and her own personal inconvenience would be at a minimum. However, she was not to discuss this arrangement with anyone without his consent. She would be protected legally in every way, and her money every month would be assured. If the authorities or any law enforcement agencies ever questioned her, she was to simply refer them to her lawyer, and she would not be bothered any further. Lucy agreed. She understood what was happening, but had no objection to how she was being used. It seemed a reasonable favor. 
But when Hagen asked her to keep her eyes open around the hotel, keep an eye on Freddie and on Freddie's boss, the man who owned and operated the hotel as a major stockholder, she said to him, Oh, Tom, you don't want me to spy on Freddie. Hagen smiled. His father worries about Freddie. He's in fast company with Mo Green, and we just want to make sure he doesn't get into any trouble. He didn't bother to explain to her that the Don had backed the building of this hotel in the desert of Las Vegas not only to supply a haven for his son, but to get a foot in the door for bigger operations. It was shortly after this interview that Dr. Jules Siegel came to work as the hotel house physician. He was very thin, very handsome and charming, and seemed very young to be a doctor, at least to Lucy. She met him when a lump grew above her wrist on her forearm. She worried about it for a few days, then one morning went to the doctor's suite of offices in the hotel. Two of the showgirls from the chorus line were in the waiting room, gossiping with each other. They had the blonde, peach-colored prettiness Lucy always envied. They looked angelic. But one of the girls was saying, I swear, if I have another dose, I'm giving up dancing. When Dr. Jules Siegel opened his office door to motion one of the showgirls inside, Lucy was tempted to leave, and if it had been something more personal and serious, she would have. Dr. Siegel was wearing slacks and an open shirt. The horn-rimmed glasses helped and his quiet, reserved manner, but the impression he gave was an informal one. And like many basically old-fashioned people, Lucy didn't believe that medicine and informality mixed. When she finally got into his office, there was something so reassuring in his manner that all her misgivings fled. He spoke hardly at all, and yet he was not brusque, and he took his time. When she asked him what the lump was, he patiently explained that it was a quite common fibrous growth that could in no way be malignant or a cause for serious concern. He picked up a heavy medical book and said, Hold out your arm. She held out her arms tentatively. He smiled at her for the first time. I'm going to cheat myself out of a surgical fee. I'll just smash it with this book and it will flatten out. It may pop up again, but if I remove it surgically, you'll be out of money and have to wear bandages and all that. Okay? She smiled at him. For some reason, she had an absolute trust in him. Okay. In the next instant, she let out a yell as he brought down the heavy medical volume on her forearm. The lump had flattened out, almost. Did it hurt that much? No. She watched him completing her case history card. Is that all? He nodded, not paying any more attention to her. She left. A week later, he saw her in the coffee shop and sat next to her at the counter. How's the arm? She smiled at him. Fine. You're pretty unorthodox, but you're pretty good. He grinned at her. You don't know how unorthodox I am. And I didn't know how rich you were. The Vegas Sun just published a list of point owners in the hotel, and Lucy Mancini has a big ten points. I could have made a fortune on that little bump. She didn't answer him, suddenly reminded of Hagen's warnings. He grinned again. Don't worry. I know the score. You're just one of the dummies. Vegas is full of them. How about seeing one of the shows with me tonight, and I'll buy you dinner. I'll even buy you some roulette chips. She was a little doubtful. He urged her. Finally, she said, I'd like to come, but I'm afraid you might be disappointed by how the night ends. I'm not really a swinger like most of the girls here in Vegas. That's why I asked you. I've prescribed a night's rest for myself. Lucy smiled at him and said a little sadly, Is it that obvious? He shook his head. Okay, supper then, but I'll buy my own roulette chips. They went to the supper show, and Jules kept her amused by describing different types of bare thighs and breasts in medical terms, but without sneering, all in good humor. Afterward, they played roulette together at the same wheel and won over a hundred dollars. Still later, they drove up to Boulder Dam in the moonlight, and he tried to make love to her, but when she resisted after a few kisses, he knew that she really meant no and stopped. Again, he took his defeat with great good humor. With half-guilty reproach, Lucy said, I told you I wouldn't. 
You would have been awfully insulted if I didn't even try. And she had to laugh because it was true. The next few months, they became best friends. It wasn't love because they didn't make love. Lucy wouldn't let him. She could see he was puzzled by her refusal, but not hurt the way most men would be, and that made her trust him even more. She found out that beneath his professional doctor's exterior, he was wildly fun-loving and reckless. On weekends, he drove a souped-up MG in the California races. When he took a vacation, he went down into the interior of Mexico, the real wild country, he told her, where strangers were murdered for their shoes, and life was as primitive as a thousand years ago. Quite accidentally, she learned that he was a surgeon and had been connected with a famous hospital in New York. All this made her more puzzled than ever at his having taken the job at the hotel. When she asked him about it, Jules said, You tell me your dark secret, and I'll tell you mine. She blushed and let the matter drop. Jules didn't pursue it either, and their relationship continued, a warm friendship that she counted on more than she realized. Now, sitting at the side of the pool with Jules' blonde head in her lap, she felt an overwhelming tenderness for him. Her loins ached, and without realizing it, her fingers sensuously stroked the skin of his neck. He seemed to be sleeping, not noticing, and she became excited just by the feel of him against her. Suddenly, he raised his head from her lap and stood up. He took her by the hand and led her over the grass onto the cement walk. She followed him dutifully, even when he led her into one of the cottages that held his private apartment. When they were inside, he fixed them both big drinks. After the blazing sun and her own sensuous thoughts, the drink went to her head and made her dizzy. Then, Jules had his arms around her, and their bodies, naked except for scanty bathing suits, were pressed against each other. Lucy was murmuring, Don't. But there was no conviction in her voice, and Jules paid no attention to her. He quickly stripped her bathing bra off so that he could fondle her heavy breasts, kissed them, and then stripped off her bathing trunks, and as he did so, kept kissing her body, her rounded belly, and the insides of her thighs. He stood up, struggling out of his own bathing shorts and embracing her. And then, naked in each other's arms, they were lying on the bed and she could feel him entering her, and it was enough, just the slight touch, for her to reach her climax, and then in the second afterward, she could read in the motions of his body, his surprise. She felt the overwhelming shame she had felt before she knew Sonny. But Jules was twisting her body over the edge of the bed, positioning her legs a certain way, and she let him control her limbs and her body, and then he was entering her again and kissing her, and this time she could feel him. But more important, she could tell that he was feeling something too and coming to his climax. When he rolled off her body, Lucy huddled into one corner of the bed and began to cry. She felt so ashamed. And then she was shockingly surprised to hear Jules laugh softly and say, You poor benighted Italian girl. So that's why you kept refusing me all these months. You dope. He said, you dope, with such friendly affection that she turned toward him and he took her naked body against his. You are medieval. You are positively medieval. But the voice was soothingly comforting as she continued to weep. Jules lit a cigarette and put it in her mouth so that she choked on the smoke and had to stop crying. Now listen to me. If you had had a decent modern raising with a family culture that was part of the 20th century, your problem would have been solved years ago. Now let me tell you what your problem is. It's not the equivalent of being ugly, of having bad skin and squinty eyes that facial surgery really doesn't solve. Your problem is like having a wart or a mole on your chin or an improperly formed ear. Stop thinking of it in sexual terms. Stop thinking in your head that you have a big box no man can love because it won't give his penis the necessary friction. What you have is a pelvic malformation and what we surgeons call a weakening of the pelvic floor. 
It usually comes after childbearing, but it can be simply bad bone structure. It's a common condition, and many women live a life of misery because of it, when a simple operation could fix them up. Some women even commit suicide because of it. But I never figured you for that condition because you have such a beautiful body. I thought it was psychological, since I know your story. You told it to me often enough, you and Sonny. But let me give you a thorough physical examination, and I can tell you just exactly how much work will have to be done. Now, go in and take a shower. Lucy went in and took her shower. Patiently, and over her protests, Jules made her lie on the bed, legs spread apart. He had an extra doctor's bag in his apartment, and it was open. He also had a small glass-topped table by the bed, which held some other instruments. He was all business now, examining her, sticking his fingers inside her and moving them around. She was beginning to feel humiliated when he kissed her on the navel and said, almost absent-mindedly, First time I've enjoyed my work. Then he flipped her over and thrust a finger in her rectum, feeling around, but his other hand was stroking her neck affectionately. When he was finished, he turned her right side up again, kissed her tenderly on the mouth, and said, Baby, I'm going to build you a whole new thing down there, and then I'll try it out personally. It will be a medical first. I'll be able to write a paper on it for the official journals. Jules did everything with such good-humored affection. He so obviously cared for her that Lucy got over her shame and embarrassment. He even had the medical textbook down off its shelf to show her a case like her own and the surgical procedure to correct it. She found herself quite interested. It's a health thing, too. If you don't get it corrected, you're going to have a hell of a lot of trouble later on with your whole plumbing system. The structure becomes progressively weaker unless it's corrected by surgery. It's a damn shame that old-fashioned prudery keeps a lot of doctors from properly diagnosing and correcting the situation and a lot of women from complaining about it. Don't talk about it. Please, don't talk about it. He could see that she was still, to some extent, ashamed of her secret, embarrassed by her ugly defect. Though to his medically trained mind, this seemed the height of silliness. He was sensitive enough to identify with her. It also put him on the right track to making her feel better. Okay, I know your secret, so now I'll tell you mine. You always ask me what I'm doing here in this town, one of the youngest and most brilliant surgeons in the East. He was mocking some newspaper reports about himself. The truth is that I'm an abortionist, which in itself is not so bad, so is half the medical profession. But I got caught. I had a friend, a doctor named Kennedy. We interned together. And he's really a straight guy, but he said he'd help me. I understand Tom Hagen had told him if he ever needed help on anything, the Corleone family was indebted to him. So he spoke to Hagen. The next thing I know, the charges were dropped. But the Medical Association and the Eastern Establishment had me blacklisted. So the Corleone family got me this job out here. I make a good living. I do a job that has to be done. These showgirls are always getting knocked up, and aborting them is the easiest thing in the world if they come to me right away. I cure at them, like you scrape a frying pan. Freddy Corleone is a real terror. By my count, he's knocked up 15 girls while I've been here. I've seriously considered giving him a father-to-son talk about sex, especially since I've had to treat him three times for clap and once for syphilis. Freddy is the original bareback rider. Jewel stopped talking. He had been deliberately indiscreet, something he never did, so that Lucy would know that other people, including someone she knew and feared a little like Freddy Corleone, also had shameful secrets. Think of it as a piece of elastic in your body that has lost its elasticity. By cutting out a piece, you make it tighter, snappier. I'll think about it. But she was sure she was going to go through with it. She trusted Jules absolutely. Then she thought of something else. How much will it cost? Jules frowned. 
I haven't the facilities here for surgery like that, and I'm not the expert at it. But I have a friend in Los Angeles who's the best in the field and has facilities at the best hospital. In fact, he tightens up all the movie stars when those dames find out that getting their faces and breasts lifted isn't the whole answer to making a man love them. He owes me a few favors, so it won't cost anything. I do his abortions for him. Listen, if it weren't unethical, I'd tell you the names of some of the movie sex queens who've had the operation. She was immediately curious. Oh, come on, tell me. Come on. It would be a delicious piece of gossip, and one of the things about Jules was that she could show her feminine love of gossip without him making fun of it. I'll tell you if you have dinner with me and spend the night with me. We have a lot of lost time to make up for because of your silliness. Lucy felt an overwhelming affection to him for being so kind, and she was able to say, You don't have to sleep with me. You know you won't enjoy it the way I am now. Jules burst out laughing. You dope. You incredible dope. Didn't you ever hear of any other way of making love far more ancient, far more civilized? Are you really that innocent? Oh, that. Oh, that. Nice girls don't do that. Manly men don't do that. Even in the year 1948. Well, baby, I can take you to the house of a little old lady right here in Las Vegas who was the youngest madam of the most popular whorehouse in the Wild West days, back in 1880, I think it was. She likes to talk about the old days. You know what she told me? That those gunslingers, those manly, virile, straight-shooting cowboys would always ask the girls for a French, what we doctors call fellatio, what you call, oh, that. Did you ever think of doing, oh, that, with your beloved Sonny? For the first time, she truly surprised him. She turned on him with what he could think of only as a Mona Lisa smile, his scientific mind immediately darting off on a tangent. Could this be the solving of that centuries-old mystery? And said quietly, I did everything with Sonny. It was the first time she had ever admitted anything like that to anyone. Two weeks later, Jules Siegel stood in the operating room of the Los Angeles Hospital and watched his friend, Dr. Frederick Kellner, perform the specialty. Before Lucy was put under anesthesia, Jules leaned over. I told him you were my special girl, so he's going to put in some real tight walls. But the preliminary pill had already made her dopey, and she didn't laugh or smile. His teasing remark did take away some of the terror of the operation. Dr. Kellner made his incision with the confidence of a pool shark making an easy shot. The technique of any operation to strengthen the pelvic floor required the accomplishment of two objectives. The musculofibrous pelvic sling had to be shortened so that the slack was taken up. And, of course, the vaginal opening, the weak spot itself in the pelvic floor, had to be brought forward, brought under the pubic arch, and so relieved from the line of direct pressure above. Repairing the pelvic sling was called parenchorophy. Suturing the vaginal wall was called colporophy. Jules saw that Dr. Kellner was working carefully now. The big danger in the cutting was going too deep and hitting the rectum. It was a fairly uncomplicated case. Jules had studied all the x-rays and tests. Nothing should go wrong, except that in surgery, something could always go wrong. Kellner was working on the diaphragm sling. The T-forceps held the vaginal flap and exposing the ani muscle and the fasci, which formed its sheath. Kellner's gauze-covered fingers were pushing aside loose connective tissue. Jules kept his eyes on the vaginal wall for the appearance of the veins, the telltale danger signal of injuring the rectum. But old Kellner knew his stuff. He was building a new snatch as easily as a carpenter nails together two-by-four studs. Kellner was trimming away the excess vaginal wall, using the fastening-down stitch to close the bite taken out of the tissue of the redundant angle, ensuring that no troublesome projections would form. 
Kellner was trying to insert three fingers into the narrowed opening of the lumen. Then, two. He just managed to get two fingers in, probing deeply, and for a moment he looked up at Jules, and his china-blue eyes over the gauze mask twinkled as though asking if that was narrow enough. Then he was busy again with his sutures. It was all over. They wheeled Lucy out to the recovery room, and Jules talked to Kellner. Kellner was cheerful, the best sign that everything had gone well. No complications at all, my boy. Nothing growing in there. Very simple case. She has wonderful body tone, unusual in these cases, and now she's in first-class shape for fun and games. I envy you, my boy. Of course, you'll have to wait a little while, but then I guarantee you'll like my work. Jules laughed. You're a true Pygmalion, Doctor. Really, you are marvelous. Dr. Kellner grunted. That's all child's play, like your abortions. If society would only be realistic, people like you and I, really talented people, could do important work and leave this stuff for the hacks. By the way, I'll be sending you a girl next week. A very nice girl. They seem to be the ones who always get in trouble. That'll make us all square for this job today. Jules shook his hand. Thanks, Doctor. Come out yourself sometime, and I'll see that you get all the courtesies of the house. Kellner gave him a wry smile. I gamble every day. I don't need your roulette wheels and crap tables. I knock heads with fate too often as it is. You're going to waste out there, Jules. Another couple of years and you can forget about serious surgery. You won't be up to it. He turned away. Jules knew it was not meant as a reproach, but as a warning. Yet it took the heart out of him anyway. Since Lucy wouldn't be out of the recovery room for at least 12 hours, he went out on the town and got drunk. Part of the getting drunk was his feeling of relief that everything had worked out so well with Lucy. The next morning when he went to the hospital to visit her, he was surprised to find two men at her bedside and flowers all over the room. Lucy was propped up on pillows, her face radiant. Jules was surprised because Lucy had broken with her family and had told him not to notify them unless something went wrong. Of course, Freddy Corleone knew she was in the hospital for a minor operation. That had been necessary so that they could both get time off. And Freddy had told Jules that the hotel would pick up all the bills for Lucy. Lucy was introducing them, and one of the men Jules recognized instantly, the famous Johnny Fontaine. The other was a big, muscular, snotty-looking Italian guy whose name was Nino Valenti. They both shook hands with Jules and then paid no further attention to him. They were kidding Lucy, talking about the old neighborhood in New York, about people and events Jules had no way of sharing. So he said to Lucy, I'll drop by later. I have to see Dr. Kellner anyway. But Johnny Fontaine was turning the charm on him. Hey, buddy, we have to leave ourselves. You keep Lucy company. Take good care of her, Doc. Jules noticed a peculiar hoarseness in Johnny Fontaine's voice and remembered suddenly that the man hadn't sung in public for over a year now, that he had won the Academy Award for his acting. Could the man's voice have changed so late in life and the papers keeping it a secret, everybody keeping it a secret? Jules loved inside gossip, and he kept listening to Fontaine's voice in an attempt to diagnose the trouble. It could be simple strain or too much booze and cigarettes or even too much women. The voice had an ugly timber to it. He could never be called the sweet crooner anymore. Jules said to Johnny Fontaine, You sound like you have a cold. Just strain. I tried to sing last night. I guess I just can't accept the fact that my voice changed. Getting old, you know. He gave Jules a what-the-hell grin. Didn't you get a doctor to look at it? Maybe it's something that can be fixed. Fontaine was not so charming now. He gave Jules a long, cool look. That's the first thing I did nearly two years ago. Best specialists. My own doctor who's supposed to be the top guy out here in California. They told me to get a lot of rest. Nothing wrong, just getting older. A man's voice changes when he gets older. Fontaine ignored him after that, paying attention to Lucy, charming her as he charmed all women. Jules kept listening to the voice. There had to be a growth on those vocal cords. But then, 
Why the hell hadn't the specialists spotted it? Was it malignant and inoperable? Then there was other stuff. He interrupted Fontaine to ask, When was the last time you got examined by a specialist? Fontaine was obviously irritated, but trying to be polite for Lucy's sake. About 18 months ago. Does your own doctor take a look once in a while? Sure he does. He gives me a codeine spray and checks me out. He told me it's just my voice aging, that all the drinking and smoking and other stuff. Maybe you know more than he does. What's his name? Fontaine said with just a faint flicker of pride. Tucker. Dr. James Tucker. What do you think of him? The name was familiar, linked to famous movie stars, female, and to an expensive health farm. With a grin, Jules said, He's a sharp dresser. Fontaine was angry now. You think you're a better doctor than he is? Jules laughed. Are you a better singer than Carmen Lombardo? He was surprised to see Nino Valenti break up in laughter, banging his head on his chair. The joke hadn't been that good. Then, on the wings of those guffaws, he caught the smell of bourbon and knew that even this early in the morning, Mr. Valenti, whoever the hell he was, was at least half drunk. Fontaine was grinning at his friend. Hey, you're supposed to be laughing at my jokes, not his. Meanwhile, Lucy stretched out her hand to Jules and drew him to her bedside. He looks like a bum, but he's a brilliant surgeon. If he says he's better than Dr. Tucker, then he's better than Dr. Tucker. You listen to him, Johnny. The nurse came in and told them they would have to leave. The resident was going to do some work on Lucy and needed privacy. Jules was amused to see Lucy turn her head away, so when Johnny Fontaine and Nino Valenti kissed her, they would hit her cheek instead of her mouth. But they seemed to expect it. She let Jules kiss her on the mouth and whispered, Come back this afternoon, please. He nodded. Out in the corridor, Valenti asked him, What was the operation for? Anything serious? Jules shook his head. Just a little female plumbing. Absolutely routine, please believe me. I'm more concerned than you are. I hope to marry the girl. They were looking at him appraisingly, so he asked, How did you find out she was in the hospital? Freddy called us and asked us to look in. We all grew up in the same neighborhood. Lucy was maid of honor when Freddy's sister got married. Oh. He didn't let on that he knew the whole story, perhaps because they were so cagey about protecting Lucy and her affair with Sonny. As they walked down the corridor, Jules said to Fontaine, I have visiting doctor's privileges here. Why don't you let me have a look at your throat? Fontaine shook his head. I'm in a hurry. That's a million-dollar throat. He can't have cheap doctors looking down it. Jules saw Valenti was grinning at him, obviously on his side. I'm no cheap doctor. I was the brightest young surgeon and diagnostician on the East Coast until they got me on the abortion rap. As he had known it would, that made them take him seriously. By admitting his crime, he inspired belief in his claim of high competence. Valenti recovered first. If Johnny can't use you, I got a girlfriend I want you to look at. Not at her throat, though. How long will you take? Ten minutes. It was a lie, but he believed in telling lies to people. Truth-telling and medicine just didn't go together, except in dire emergencies, if then. Okay. His voice was darker, hoarser with fright. Jules recruited a nurse and a consulting room. It didn't have everything he needed, but there was enough. In less than ten minutes, he knew there was a growth on the vocal cords. That was easy. Tucker, that incompetent sartorial son of a bitch of a Hollywood phony, should have been able to spot it. Christ, maybe the guy didn't even have a license, and if he did, it should be taken away from him. Jules didn't pay any attention to the two men now. He picked up the phone and asked for the throat man at the hospital to come down. Then he swung around and said to Nino Valenti, I think it might be a long wait for you. You'd better leave. Fontaine stared at him in utter disbelief. You son of a bitch! You think you're going to keep me here? You think you're going to fuck around with my throat? Jules, with more pleasure than he would have thought possible, gave it to him straight between the eyes. You can do whatever you like. You've got a growth of some sort on your vocal cords, in your larynx. If you stay here the next few hours, we can nail it down, whether it's malignant 
or non-malignant. We can make a decision for surgery or treatment. I can give you the whole story. I can give you the name of the top specialist in America, and we can have him out here on the plane tonight. With your money, that is, and if I think it necessary. But you can walk out of here and see your quack buddy or sweat while you decide to see another doctor or get referred to somebody incompetent. Then, if it's malignant and gets big enough, they'll cut out your whole larynx or you'll die. Or you can just sweat. Stick here with me and we can get it all squared away in a few hours. You got anything more important to do? Let's stick around, Johnny. What the hell? I'll go down the hall and call the studio. I won't tell them anything, just that we're held up. Then I'll come back here and keep you company. It proved to be a very long afternoon, but a rewarding one. The diagnosis of the staff throat man was perfectly sound as far as Jules could see after the x-rays and swab analysis. Halfway through, Johnny Fontaine, his mouth soaked with iodine, retching over the roll of gauze stuck in his mouth, tried to quit. Nino Valenti grabbed him by the shoulders and slammed him back into the chair. When it was all over, Jules grinned at Fontaine and said, Warts. Fontaine didn't grasp it. Just some warts. We'll slice them right off like skin off bologna. In a few months, you'll be okay. Valenti let out a yell, but Fontaine was still frowning. How about singing afterward? How will it affect my singing? Jules shrugged. On that, there's no guarantee. But since you can't sing now, what's the difference? Fontaine looked at him with distaste. Kid, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. You act like you're giving me good news when what you're telling me is maybe I won't sing anymore. Is that right? Maybe I won't sing anymore? Finally, Jules was disgusted. He'd operated as a real doctor, and it had been a pleasure. He had done this bastard a real favor, and he was acting as if he'd been done dirt. Listen, Mr. Fontaine, I'm a doctor of medicine, and you can call me doctor, not kid. And I did give you very good news. When I brought you down here, I was certain that you had a malignant growth in your larynx, which would entail cutting out your whole voice box, or which could kill you. I was worried that I might have to tell you that you were a dead man. And I was so delighted when I could say the word warts, because your singing gave me so much pleasure. Helped me seduce girls when I was younger. And you're a real artist. But also, you're a very spoiled guy. Do you think because you're Johnny Fontaine you can't get cancer? Or a brain tumor that's inoperable? Or a failure of the heart? Do you think you're never going to die? Well, it's not all sweet music. And if you want to see real trouble, take a walk through this hospital, and you'll sing a love song about warts. So just stop the crap and get on with what you have to do. Your Adolf Manju medical man can get you the proper surgeon, but if he tries to get into the operating room, I suggest you have him arrested for attempted murder. Jules started to walk out of the room when Valenti said, boy, Doc, that's telling him. Jules whirled around. Do you always get loop before noontime? Sure. Valenti grinned at him, and with such good humor that Jules said more gently than he had meant to. You have to figure you'll be dead in five years if you keep that up. Valenti was lumbering up to him with little dancing steps. He threw his arms around Jules. His breath stank of bourbon. He was laughing very hard. He asked, still laughing, Five years? Is it going to take that long? A month after her operation, Lucy Mancini sat beside the Vegas hotel pool, one hand holding a cocktail, the other hand stroking Jules' head, which lay in her lap. Jules said teasingly, You don't have to build up your courage. I have champagne waiting in our suite. Are you sure it's okay so soon? I'm the doctor. Tonight's the big night. Do you realize I'll be the first surgeon in medical history who tried out the results of his medical first operation? You know, the before and after? I'm going to enjoy writing it up for the journals. Let's see. 
while the before was distinctly pleasurable for psychological reasons and the sophistication of the surgeon instructor, the post-operative coitus was extremely rewarding strictly for its neurological. He stopped talking because Lucy had yanked on his hair hard enough for him to yell with pain. She smiled down at him. If you're not satisfied tonight, I can really say it's your fault. I guarantee my work. I planned it, even though I just let old Kellner do the manual labor. Now, let's just rest up. We have a long night of research ahead. When they went up to their suite, they were living together now, Lucy found a surprise waiting, a gourmet supper, and next to her champagne glass, a jeweler's box with a huge diamond engagement ring inside it. That shows you how much confidence I have in my work. Now let's see you earn it. He was very tender, very gentle with her. She was a little scary at first, her flesh jumping away from his touch. But then, reassured, she felt her body building up to a passion she had never known. And when they were done the first time and Jules whispered, I do good work, she whispered back, Oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. And they both laughed to each other as they started making love again. Book 6, Chapter 23 After five months of exile in Sicily, Michael Corleone came finally to understand his father's character and his destiny. He came to understand men like Luca Brasi, the ruthless capo regime Clemenza, his mother's resignation and acceptance of her role. For in Sicily... He saw what they would have been if they had chosen not to struggle against their fate. He understood why the Don always said, A man has only one destiny. He came to understand the contempt for authority and legal government, the hatred for any man who broke omerta, the law of silence. Dressed in old clothes and a billed cap, Michael had been transported from the ship docked at Palermo to the interior of the Sicilian island, to the very heart of a province controlled by the Mafia where the local capo mafioso was greatly indebted to his father for some past service. The province held the town of Corleone, whose name the Don had taken when he emigrated to America so long ago. But there were no longer any of the Don's relatives alive. The women had died of old age. All the men had been killed in vendettas, or had also emigrated, either to America, Brazil, or to some other province on the Italian mainland. He was to learn later that this small, poverty-stricken town had the highest murder rate of any place in the world. Michael was installed as a guest in the home of a bachelor uncle of the capo mafioso. The uncle in his 70s was also the doctor for the district. The capo mafioso was a man in his late 50s named Don Tomasino, and he operated as the gabilotto for a huge estate belonging to one of Sicily's most noble families. The gabilotto, a sort of overseer to the estates of the rich, also guaranteed that the poor would not try to claim land not being cultivated, would not try to encroach in any way on the estate by poaching or trying to farm it as squatters. In short, the gabilotto was a mafioso, who, for a certain sum of money, protected the real estate of the rich from all claims made on it by the poor, legal or illegal. When any poor peasant tried to implement the law which permitted him to buy uncultivated land, the gabilato frightened him off with threats of bodily harm or death. It was that simple. Don Tomasino also controlled the water rights in the area and vetoed the local building of any new dams by the Roman government. Such dams would ruin the lucrative business of selling water from the artesian wells he controlled, make water too cheap, ruin the whole important water economy so laboriously built up over hundreds of years. However, Don Tomasino was an old-fashioned mafia chief and would have nothing to do with dope traffic or prostitution. In this, Don Tomasino was at odds with the new breed of mafia leaders springing up in big cities like Palermo. New men who, influenced by American gangsters deported to Italy, had no such scruples. The mafia chief was an extremely portly man, 
a man with a belly, literally, as well as in the figurative sense that meant a man able to inspire fear in his fellow men. Under his protection, Michael had nothing to fear. Yet it was considered necessary to keep the fugitive's identity a secret. And so, Michael was restricted to the walled estate of Dr. Taza, the Don's uncle. Dr. Taza was tall for a Sicilian, almost six feet, and had ruddy cheeks and snow-white hair. Though in his seventies, he went every week to Palermo to pay his respects to the younger prostitutes of that city. The younger, the better. Dr. Taza's other vice was reading. He read everything and talked about what he read to his fellow townsmen, patients who were illiterate peasants, the estate shepherds, and this gave him a local reputation for foolishness. What did books have to do with them? In the evenings, Dr. Taza, Don Tomasino, and Michael sat in the huge garden populated with those marble statues that on this island seemed to grow out of the garden as magically as the black heady grapes. Dr. Taza loved to tell stories about the Mafia and its exploits over the centuries, and in Michael Corleone, he had a fascinated listener. There were times when even Don Tomasino would be carried away by the balmy air, the fruity, intoxicating wine, the elegant and quiet comfort of the garden, and tell a story from his own practical experience. The doctor was the legend, the Don, the reality. In this antique garden, Michael Corleone learned about the roots from which his father grew, that the word mafia had originally meant place of refuge. Then it became the name for the secret organization that sprang up to fight against the rulers that had crushed the country and its people for centuries. Sicily was a land that had been more cruelly raped than any other in history. The Inquisition had tortured rich and poor alike. The land-owning barons and the princes of the Catholic Church exercised absolute power over the shepherds and farmers. The police were the instruments of their power, and so identified with them that to be called a policeman is the foulest insult one Sicilian can hurl at another. Faced with the savagery of this absolute power, the suffering people learned never to betray their anger and their hatred for fear of being crushed. They learned never to make themselves vulnerable by uttering any sort of threat, since giving such a warning ensured a quick reprisal. They learned that society was their enemy, and so, when they sought redress for their wrongs, they went to the rebel underground, the Mafia. And the Mafia cemented its power by originating the law of silence, the Omerta. In the countryside of Sicily, a stranger asking directions to the nearest town will not even receive the courtesy of an answer. And the greatest crime any member of the Mafia could commit would be to tell the police the name of the man who had just shot him or done him any kind of injury. Omerta became the religion of the people, a woman whose husband has been murdered would not tell the police the name of her husband's murderer, not even of her child's murderer, her daughter's raper. Justice had never been forthcoming from the authorities, and so the people had always gone to the Robin Hood Mafia, and to some extent the Mafia still fulfilled this role. People turned to their local capo mafioso for help in every emergency. He was their social worker, their district captain, ready with a basket of food and a job, their protector. But what Dr. Taza did not add, what Michael learned on his own in the months that followed, was that the mafia in Sicily had become the illegal arm of the rich and even the auxiliary police of the legal and political structure. It had become a degenerate capitalist structure, anti-communist, anti-liberal, placing its own taxes on every form of business endeavor, no matter how small. Michael Corleone understood for the first time why men like his father chose to become thieves and murderers rather than members of the legal society. The poverty and fear and degradation were too awful to be acceptable to any man of spirit. And in America, some emigrating Sicilians had assumed there would be an equally cruel authority. Dr. Taza offered to take Michael into Palermo with him on his weekly visit to the bordello, but Michael refused. His flight to Sicily had prevented him from getting proper medical treatment for his smashed jaw, and he now carried a memento from Captain McCluskey on the left side of his face. 
The bones had knitted badly, throwing his profile askew, giving him the appearance of depravity when viewed from that side. He had always been vain about his looks, and this upset him more than he thought possible. The pain that came and went, he didn't mind at all. Dr. Taza gave him some pills that deadened it. Taza offered to treat his face, but Michael refused. He had been there long enough to learn that Dr. Taza was perhaps the worst physician in Sicily. Dr. Taza read everything but his medical literature, which he admitted he could not understand. He had passed his medical exams through the good offices of the most important mafia chief in Sicily, who had made a special trip to Palermo to confer with Taza's professors about what grades they should give him. And this, too, showed how the mafia in Sicily was cancerous to the society it inhabited. Merit meant nothing. Talent meant nothing. Work meant nothing. The mafia godfather gave you your profession as a gift. Michael had plenty of time to think things out. During the day, he took walks in the countryside, always accompanied by two of the shepherds attached to Don Tomasino's estate. The shepherds of the island were often recruited to act as the mafia's hired killers and did their job simply to earn money to live. Michael thought about his father's organization. If it continued to prosper, it would grow into what had happened here on this island, so cancerous that it would destroy the whole country. Sicily was already a land of ghosts, its men emigrating to every other country on earth to be able to earn their bread or simply to escape being murdered for exercising their political and economic freedoms. On his long walks, the most striking thing in Michael's eyes was the magnificent beauty of the country. He walked through the orange orchards that formed shady deep caverns through the countryside, with their ancient conduits splashing water out of the fanged mouths of great snake stones carved before Christ. Houses built like ancient Roman villas, with huge marble portals and great vaulted rooms, falling into ruins or inhabited by stray sheep. On the horizon, the bony hills shone like picked bleached bones piled high. Gardens and fields, sparkly green, decorated the desert landscape like bright emerald necklaces. And sometimes he walked as far as the town of Corleone, its 18,000 people strung out in dwellings that pitted the side of the nearest mountain, the mean hovels built out of black rock quarried from that mountain. In the last year, there had been over 60 murders in Corleone, and it seemed that death shadowed the town. Further on, the wood of Ficuzza broke the savage monotony of arable plain. His two shepherd bodyguards always carried their lupatas with them when accompanying Michael on his walks. The deadly Sicilian shotgun was the favorite weapon of the mafia. Indeed, the police chief sent by Mussolini to clean the mafia out of Sicily had, as one of his first steps, ordered all stone walls in Sicily to be knocked down to not more than three feet in height so that murderers with their lupatas could not use the walls as ambush points for their assassinations. This didn't help much, and the police minister solved his problem by arresting and deporting to penal colonies any male suspected of being a mafioso. When the island of Sicily was liberated by the Allied armies, the American military government officials believed that anyone imprisoned by the fascist regime was a Democrat, and many of these mafiosi were appointed as mayors of villages or interpreters to the military government. This good fortune enabled the mafia to reconstitute itself and become more formidable than ever before. The long walks, a bottle of strong wine at night with a heavy plate of pasta and meat enabled Michael to sleep. There were books in Italian in Dr. Taz's library, and though Michael spoke dialect Italian and had taken some college courses in Italian, his reading of these books took a great deal of effort and time. His speech became almost accentless, and though he could never pass as a native of the district, it would be believed that he was one of those strange Italians from the far north of Italy bordering the Swiss and Germans. The distortion of the left side of his face made him more native. It was the kind of disfigurement common in Sicily because of the lack of medical care, the little injury that cannot be patched up simply for lack of money. Many children, many men, bore disfigurements that in America would have been repaired by minor surgery or sophisticated medical treatments.
Michael often thought of Kay, of her smile, her body, and always felt a twinge of conscience at leaving her so brutally without a word of farewell. Oddly enough, his conscience was never troubled by the two men he had murdered. Salazzo had tried to kill his father. Captain McCluskey had disfigured him for life. Dr. Taza always kept after him about getting surgery done for his lopsided face, especially when Michael asked him for pain-killing drugs, the pain getting worse as time went on, and more frequent. Taza explained that there was a facial nerve below the eye, from which radiated a whole complex of nerves. Indeed, this was the favorite spot for mafia torturers, who searched it out on the cheeks of their victims with the needle-fine point of an ice pick. That particular nerve in Michael's face had been injured, or perhaps there was a splinter of bone lanced into it. Simple surgery in a Palermo hospital would permanently relieve the pain. Michael refused. When the doctor asked why, Michael grinned and said, It's something from home. And he really didn't mind the pain, which was more an ache, a small throbbing in his skull, like a motored apparatus running in liquid to purify it. It was nearly seven months of leisurely, rustic living before Michael felt real boredom. At about this time, Don Tomasino became very busy and was seldom seen at the villa. He was having his troubles with the new mafia springing up in Palermo, young men who were making a fortune out of the post-war construction boom in that city. With this wealth, they were trying to encroach on the country fiefs of old-time mafia leaders whom they contemptuously labeled Mustache Peets. Don Tomasino was kept busy defending his domain, and so Michael was deprived of the old man's company and had to be content with Dr. Taz's stories, which were beginning to repeat themselves. One morning, Michael decided to take a long hike to the mountains beyond Corleone. He was, naturally, accompanied by the two shepherd bodyguards. This was not really a protection against enemies of the Corleone family. It was simply too dangerous for anyone not a native to go wandering about by himself. It was dangerous enough for a native. The region was loaded with bandits, with mafia partisans fighting against each other and endangering everybody else in the process. He might also be mistaken for a pagliaio thief. A pagliaio is a straw-thatched hut erected in the fields to house farming tools and to provide shelter for the agricultural laborers so that they will not have to carry them on the long walk from their homes in the village. In Sicily, the peasant does not live on the land he cultivates. It is too dangerous, and any arable land, if he owns it, is too precious. Rather, he lives in his village, and at sunrise, begins his voyage out to work in distant fields, a commuter on foot. A worker who arrived at his pagliaio and found it looted was an injured man indeed. The bread was taken out of his mouth for that day. The mafia, after the law proved helpless, took this interest of the peasant under its protection and solved the problem in typical fashion. It hunted down and slaughtered all Pagliaio thieves. It was inevitable that some innocent suffered. It was possible that if Michael wandered past a Pagliaio that had just been looted, he might be adjudged the criminal, unless he had somebody to vouch for him. So, on one sunny morning, he started hiking across the fields, followed by his two faithful shepherds. One of them was a plain, simple fellow, almost moronic, silent as the dead, and with a face as impassive as an Indian. He had the wiry, small build of the typical Sicilian before they ran to the fat of middle age. His name was Kahlo. The other shepherd was more outgoing, younger, and had seen something of the world, mostly oceans, since he had been a sailor in the Italian Navy during the war and had just had time enough to get himself tattooed before his ship was sunk and he was captured by the British. But the tattoo made him a famous man in his village. Sicilians do not often let themselves be tattooed. They do not have the opportunity nor the inclination. The shepherd, Fabrizio, had done so primarily to cover a splotchy red birthmark on his belly, and yet the Mafia market carts had gaily painted scenes on their sides, beautiful primitive paintings done with loving care. In any case, Fabrizio, back in his native village, was not too proud of that tattoo on his chest, though it showed a subject dear to the Sicilian honor, 
a husband stabbing a naked man and woman entwined together on the hairy floor of his belly. Fabrizio would joke with Michael and ask questions about America, for of course it was impossible to keep them in the dark about his true nationality. Still, they did not know exactly who he was except that he was in hiding and there could be no babbling about him. Fabrizio sometimes brought Michael a fresh cheese, still sweating the milk that formed it. They walked along dusty country roads, passing donkeys, pulling gaily painted carts. The land was filled with pink flowers, orange orchards, groves of almond and olive trees, all blooming. That had been one of the surprises. Michael had expected a barren land because of the legendary poverty of Sicilians, and yet he had found it a land of gushing plenty, carpeted with flowers scented by lemon blossoms. It was so beautiful that he wondered how its people could bear to leave it. How terrible man had been to his fellow man could be measured by the great exodus from what seemed to be a Garden of Eden. He had planned to walk to the coastal village of Mazara and then take a bus back to Corleone in the evening and so tire himself out and be able to sleep. The two shepherds wore rucksacks filled with bread and cheese they could eat on the way. They carried their lupatas quite openly, as if out for a day's hunting. It was a most beautiful morning. Michael felt as he had felt when, as a child, he had gone out early on a summer day to play ball. Then, each day had been freshly washed, freshly painted, and so it was now. Sicily was carpeted in gaudy flowers, the scent of orange and lemon blossoms so heavy that even with his facial injury, which pressed on the sinuses, he could smell it. The smashing on the left side of his face had completely healed, but the bone had formed improperly, and the pressure on his sinuses made his left eye hurt. It also made his nose run continually. He filled up handkerchiefs with mucus and often blew his nose out onto the ground as the local peasants did, a habit that had disgusted him when he was a boy and had seen old Italians disdaining handkerchiefs as English foppery blow out their noses in the asphalt gutters. His face, too, felt heavy. Dr. Taza had told him that this was due to the pressure on his sinuses caused by the badly healed fracture. Dr. Taza called it an eggshell fracture of the zygoma, that if it had been treated before the bones knitted, it could have been easily remedied by a minor surgical procedure using an instrument like a spoon to push out the bone to its proper shape. Now, however, said the doctor, he would have to check into a Palermo hospital and undergo a major procedure called maxillofacial surgery, where the bone would be broken again. That was enough for Michael. He refused. And yet, more than the pain, more than the nose dripping, he was bothered by the feeling of heaviness in his face. He never reached the coast that day. After going about 15 miles, he and his shepherd stopped in the cool, green, watery shade of an orange grove to eat lunch and drink their wine. Fabrizio was chattering about how he would someday get to America. After drinking and eating, they lolled in the shade, and Fabrizio unbuttoned his shirt and contracted his stomach muscles to make the tattoo come alive. The naked couple on his chest writhed in a lover's agony, and the dagger thrust by the husband quivered in their transfixed flesh. It amused them. It was while this was going on, that Michael was hit with what Sicilians call the Thunderbolt. Beyond the orange grove lay the green ribboned fields of a baronial estate. Down the road from the grove was a villa so Roman it looked as if it had been dug up from the ruins of Pompeii. It was a little palace with a huge marble portico and fluted Grecian columns, and through those columns came a bevy of village girls flanked by two stout matrons clad in black. They were from the village, and it obviously fulfilled their ancient duty to the local baron by cleaning his villa and otherwise preparing it for his winter sojourn. Now they were going into the fields to pick the flowers with which they would fill the rooms. They were gathering the pink sulla, purple wisteria, mixing them with orange and lemon blossoms. The girls, not seeing the men resting in the orange grove, came closer and closer. They were dressed in cheap, gaily printed frocks that clung to their bodies. They were still in their teens, but with the full womanliness sun-drenched flesh ripened into so quickly. 
Three or four of them started chasing one girl, chasing her toward the grove. The girl being chased held a bunch of huge purple grapes in her left hand, and with her right hand was picking grapes off the cluster and throwing them at her pursuers. She had a crown of ringleted hair as purple-black as the grapes, and her body seemed to be bursting out of its skin. Just short of the grove, she poised, startled, her eyes having caught the alien color of the men's shirts. She stood there, up on her toes, poised like a deer to run. She was very close now, close enough for the men to see every feature of her face. She was all ovals, oval-shaped eyes, the bones of her face, the contour of her brow. Her skin was an exquisite dark creaminess, and her eyes enormous, dark violet or brown, but dark with long, heavy lashes, shadowed her lovely face. Her mouth was rich without being gross, sweet without being weak, and dyed dark red with the juice of the grapes. She was so incredibly lovely that Fabrizio murmured, Jesus Christ, take my soul, I'm dying, as a joke, but the words came out a little too hoarsely. As if she had heard him, the girl came down off her toes and whirled away from them and fled back to her pursuers. Her haunches moved like an animal's beneath the tight print of her dress, as pagan and as innocently lustful. When she reached her friends, she whirled around again, and her face was like a dark hollow against the field of bright flowers. She extended an arm, the hand full of grapes, pointed toward the grove. The girls fled laughing, with the black-clad, stout matrons scolding them on. As for Michael Corleone, he found himself standing, his heart pounding in his chest, he felt a little dizzy. The blood was surging through his body, through all its extremities and pounding against the tips of his fingers, the tips of his toes. All the perfumes of the island came rushing in on the wind, orange, lemon blossoms, grapes, flowers. It seemed as if his body had sprung away from him, out of himself. And then he heard the two shepherds laughing. Clapping him on the shoulder, Fabrizio said, You got a hit by the thunderbolt, eh? Even Kahlo became friendly, patting him on the arm and saying, Easy, man, easy but with affection, as if Michael had been hit by a car. Fabrizio handed him a wine bottle, and Michael took a long slug. It cleared his head. He said, What the hell are you damn sheep lovers talking about? Both men laughed. Kahlo, his honest face filled with the utmost seriousness, said, You can't hide the thunderbolt. When it hits you, everybody can see it. Christ, man, don't be ashamed of it. Some men pray for the thunderbolt. You're a lucky fellow. Michael wasn't too pleased about his emotions being so easily read. But this was the first time in his life such a thing had happened to him. It was nothing like his adolescent crushes. It was nothing like the love he'd had for Kay, a love based as much on her sweetness, her intelligence, and the polarity of the fair and dark. This was an overwhelming desire for possession. This was an inerasable printing of the girl's face on his brain, and he knew she would haunt his memory every day of his life if he did not possess her. His life had become simplified, focused on one point. Everything else was unworthy of even a moment's attention. During his exile, he had always thought of Kay, though he felt they could never again be lovers or even friends. He was, after all was said, a murderer, a mafioso who had made his bones. But now, Kay was wiped completely out of his consciousness. Fabrizio said briskly, I'll go to the village. We'll find out about her. Who knows? She may be more available than we think. There's only one cure for the thunderbolt, eh, Carlo? The other shepherd nodded his head gravely. Michael didn't say anything. He followed the two shepherds as they started down the road to the nearby village into which the flock of girls had disappeared. The village was grouped around the usual central square with its fountain, but it was on a main route, so there were some stores, wine shops, and one little cafe with three tables out on a small terrace. The shepherds sat at one of the tables, and Michael joined them. There was no sign of the girls, not a trace. The village seemed deserted except for small boys and a meandering donkey. The proprietor of the cafe came to serve them. 
He was a short, burly man, almost dwarfish, but he greeted them cheerfully and set a dish of chickpeas at their table. You're strangers here, so let me advise you, try my wine. The grapes come from my own farm, and it is made by my sons themselves. They mix it with oranges and lemons. It's the best wine in Italy. They let him bring the wine in a jug, and it was even better than he claimed, dark purple and as powerful as a brandy. Fabrizio said to the cafe proprietor, You know all of the girls here, I'll bet. We saw some beauties coming down the road. One in particular got a friend here hit with the thunderbolt. He motioned to Michael. The cafe owner looked at Michael with new interest. The cracked face had seemed quite ordinary to him before, not worth a second glance. But a man hit with a thunderbolt was another matter. You had better bring a few bottles home with you, my friend. You'll need help in getting to sleep tonight. Michael asked the man. Do you know a girl with her hair all curly, very creamy skin, very big eyes, very dark eyes? Do you know a girl like that in the village? No, I don't know any girl like that. He vanished from the terrace into his cafe. The three men drank their wine slowly, finished off the jug, and called for more. The owner did not reappear. Fabrizio went into the cafe after him. When Fabrizio came out, he grimaced and said to Michael, Just as I had thought. It's his daughter we were talking about, and now he's in the back, boiling up his blood to do us a mischief. I think we'd better start walking toward Corleone. Despite his months on the island, Michael still could not get used to the Sicilian touchiness on matters of sex. And this was extreme, even for a Sicilian. But the two shepherds seemed to take it as a matter of course. They were waiting for him to leave. Fabrizio said, The old bastard mentioned he has two sons, big, tough lads that he has only to whistle up. Let's get going. Despite his months on the island, Michael still could not get used to the Sicilian touchiness on matters of sex. And this was extreme, even for a Sicilian. But the two shepherds seemed to take it as a matter of course. They were waiting for him to leave. Fabrizio said, The old bastard mentioned he has two sons, big, tough lads that he has only to whistle up. Let's get going. Michael gave him a cold stare. Up to now, he had been a quiet, gentle young man, a typical American, except that, since he was hiding in Sicily, he must have done something manly. This was the first time the shepherds had seen the Corleone stare. Don Tomasino, knowing Michael's true identity and deed, had always been wary of him, treating him as a fellow man of respect. But these unsophisticated sheep herders had come to their own opinion of Michael, and not a wise one. The cold look, Michael's rigid white face, his anger that came off him like cold smoke off ice, sobered their laughter and snuffed out their familiar friendliness. When he saw he had their proper, respectful attention, Michael said to them, Get that man out here to me. They didn't hesitate. They shouldered their lupatas and went into the dark coolness of the cafe. A few seconds later, they reappeared with the cafe owner between them. The stubby man looked in no way frightened, but his anger had a certain wariness about it. Michael leaned back in his chair and studied the man for a moment. Then he said very quietly, I understand that I've offended you by talking about your daughter. I offer you my apologies. I'm a stranger in this country. I don't know the customs that well. Let me say this. I meant no disrespect to you or her. The shepherd bodyguards were impressed. Michael's voice had never sounded like this before when speaking to them. There was command and authority in it, though he was making an apology. The cafe owner shrugged, more wary still, knowing he was not dealing with some farm boy. Who are you? And what do you want from my daughter? Without even hesitating, Michael said, I'm an American hiding in Sicily, from the police of my country. My name is Michael. You can inform the police and make your fortune, but then your daughter would lose a father rather than gain a husband. 
In any case, I want to meet your daughter. With your permission and under the supervision of your family. With all decorum. With all respect. I'm an honorable man and I don't think of dishonoring your daughter. I want to meet her. Talk to her. And then, if it hits us both right, we'll marry. If not, you'll never see me again. She may find me unsympathetic, after all, and no man can remedy that. But when the proper time comes, I'll tell you everything about me that a wife's father should know. All three men were looking at him with amazement. Fabrizio whispered in awe, It's the real thunderbolt. The cafe owner, for the first time, didn't look so confident or contemptuous. His anger was not so sure. Finally, he asked, Are you a friend of the friends? Since the word mafia could never be uttered aloud by the ordinary Sicilian, this was as close as the cafe owner could come to asking if Michael was a member of the mafia. It was the usual way of asking if someone belonged, but it was ordinarily not addressed to the person directly concerned. No, I'm a stranger in this country. The cafe owner gave him another look, the smashed left side of his face, the long legs rare in Sicily. He took a look at the two shepherds carrying their lupadas quite openly without fear and remembered how they had come into his cafe and told him their padrone wanted to talk to him. The cafe owner had snarled that he wanted the son of a bitch out of his terrace, and one of the shepherds had said, Take my word, it's best you go out and speak to him yourself. And something had made him come out. Now something made him realize that it would be best to show this stranger some courtesy. He said grudgingly, Come Sunday afternoon. My name is Vitelli, and my house is up there on the hill above the village. But come here to the cafe, and I'll take you up. Fabrizio started to say something, but Michael gave him one look and the shepherd's tongue froze in his mouth. This was not lost on Vitelli. So when Michael stood up and stretched out his hand, the cafe owner took it and smiled. He would make some inquiries, and if the answers were wrong, he could always greet Michael with his two sons bearing their own shotguns. The cafe owner was not without his contacts among the friends of the friends. But something told him this was one of those wild strokes of good fortune that Sicilians always believed in. Something told him that his daughter's beauty would make her fortune and her family secure. And it was just as well. Some of the local youths were already beginning to buzz around, and this stranger with his broken face could do the necessary job of scaring them off. Vitelli, to show his goodwill, sent the strangers off with a bottle of his best and coldest wine. He noticed that one of the shepherds paid the bill. This impressed him even more, made it clear that Michael was the superior of the two men who accompanied him. Michael was no longer interested in his hike. They found a garage and hired a car and driver to take them back to Corleone. And, some time before supper, Dr. Taza must have been informed by the shepherds of what had happened. That evening, sitting in the garden, Dr. Taza said to Don Tomasino, Our friend got hit by a thunderbolt today. Don Tomasino did not seem surprised. He grunted. I wish some of those young fellows in Palermo would get a thunderbolt. Maybe I could get some peace. He was talking about the new-style mafia chiefs rising in the big cities of Palermo and challenging the power of old regime stalwarts like himself. Michael said to Tomasino, I want you to tell those two sheep herders to leave me alone Sunday. I'm going to go to this girl's family for dinner, and I don't want them hanging around. Don Tomasino shook his head. I'm responsible to your father for you. Don't ask me that. Another thing. I hear you've even talked marriage. I can't allow that until I've sent somebody to speak to your father. Michael Corleone was very careful. This was, after all, a man of respect. Don Tomasino, you know my father. He's a man who goes deaf when somebody says the word no to him. 
and he doesn't get his hearing back until they answer him with a yes. Willie has heard my no many times. I understand about the two guards. I don't want to cause you trouble. They can come with me Sunday. But if I want to marry, I'll marry. Surely if I don't permit my own father to interfere with my personal life, it would be an insult to him to allow you to do so. The capo mafioso sighed. Well, then marriage it will have to be. I know your thunderbolt. She is a good girl from a respectable family. You can't dishonor them without the father trying to kill you. And then you'll have to shed blood. Besides, I know the family well. I can't allow it to happen. She may not be able to stand the sight of me. And she's a very young girl. She'll think me old. He saw the two men smiling at him. I'll need some money for presents, and I think I'll need a car. The Don nodded. Fabrizio will take care of everything. He's a clever boy. They taught him mechanics in the Navy. I'll give you some money in the morning, and I'll let your father know what's happening. That I must do. Michael said to Dr. Taza, Have you got anything that can dry up this damn snot always coming out of my nose? I can't have that girl seeing me wiping it all the time. Dr. Taza said, I'll cool it with a drug before you have to see her. It makes your flesh a little numb, but don't worry. You won't be kissing her for a while yet. Both Dr. and Don smiled at this witticism. By Sunday, Michael had an Alfa Romeo, battered but serviceable. He had also made a bus trip to Palermo to buy presents for the girl and her family. He had learned that the girl's name was Apollonia, and every night he thought of her lovely face and her lovely name. He had to drink a good deal of wine to get some sleep, and orders were given to the old women servants in the house to leave a chilled bottle at his bedside. He drank it empty every night. On Sunday, to the tolling of church bells that covered all of Sicily, he drove the Alfa Romeo to the village and parked it just outside the cafe. Carlo and Fabrizio were in the back seat with their lupatas, and Michael told them they were to wait in the cafe. They were not to come to the house. The cafe was closed, but Vitelli was there waiting for them, leaning against the railing of his empty terrace. They shook hands all around, and Michael took the three packages, the presents, and trudged up the hill with Vitelli to his home. This proved to be larger than the usual village hut. The Vitellis were not poverty-stricken. Inside, the house was familiar with statues of the Madonna entombed in glass, votive lights flickering redly at their feet. The two sons were waiting, also dressed in their Sunday black. They were two sturdy young men, just out of their teens, but looking older because of their hard work on the farm. The mother was a vigorous woman, as stout as her husband. There was no sign of the girl. After the introductions, which Michael did not even hear, they sat in the room that might possibly have been a living room, or just as easily the formal dining room. It was cluttered with all kinds of furniture, and not very large, but for Sicily, it was middle-class splendor. Michael gave Signor Vitelli and Signora Vitelli their presents. For the father, it was a gold cigar cutter. For the mother, a bolt of the finest cloth purchasable in Palermo. He still had one package for the girl. His presents were received with reserved thanks. The gifts were a little too premature. He should not have given anything until his second visit. The father said to him, in man-to-man, country fashion, Don't think we're so of no account to welcome strangers into our house so easily. But Don Tomasino vouched for you personally, and nobody in this province would ever doubt the word of that good man. And so we make you welcome. But I must tell you that if your intentions are serious about my daughter, we will have to know a little more about you and your family. You can understand. Your family is from this country. 
Michael nodded and said politely, I will tell you anything you wish to know, any time. Signor Vitelli held up a hand. I'm not a nosy man. Let's see if it's necessary first. Right now, you are welcome in my house as a friend of Don Tomasino. Despite the drug painted inside his nose, Michael actually smelled the girl's presence in the room. He turned, and she was standing in the arched doorway that led to the back of the house. The smell was of fresh flowers and lemon blossoms, but she wore nothing in her hair of jet black curls, nothing on her plain, severe black dress, obviously her Sunday best. She gave him a quick glance and a tiny smile before she cast her eyes down demurely and sat down next to her mother. Again, Michael felt that shortness of breath, that flooding through his body of something that was not so much desire as an insane possessiveness. He understood for the first time the classical jealousy of the Italian male. He was, at that moment, ready to kill anyone who touched this girl, who tried to claim her, take her away from him. He wanted to own her as wildly as a miser wants to own gold coins, as hungrily as a sharecropper wants to own his own land. Nothing was going to stop him from owning this girl, possessing her, locking her in a house, and keeping her prisoner only for himself. He didn't want anyone even to see her. When she turned to smile at one of her brothers, Michael gave that young man a murderous look without even realizing it. The family could see it was a classical case of the thunderbolt, and they were reassured. This young man would be putty in their daughter's hands until they were married. After that, of course, things would change, but it wouldn't matter. Michael had bought himself some new clothes in Palermo and was no longer the roughly dressed peasant, and it was obvious to the family that he was a don of some kind. His smashed face did not make him as evil-looking as he believed, because his other profile was so handsome it made the disfigurement interesting even. And in any case, this was a land where to be called disfigured, you had to compete with a host of men who had suffered extreme physical misfortune. Michael looked directly at the girl, the lovely ovals of her face. Her lips now, he could see, were almost blue, so dark was the blood pulsating in them. He said, not daring to speak her name, I saw you by the orange groves the other day, when you ran away. I hope I didn't frighten you. The girl raised her eyes to him for just a fraction. She shook her head. But the loveliness of those eyes had made Michael look away. The mother said tartly, Apollonia, speak to the poor fellow. He's come miles to see you. But the girl's long jet lashes remained closed like wings over her eyes. Michael handed her the present wrapped in gold paper, and the girl put it in her lap. The father said, Open it, girl. But her hands did not move. Her hands were small and brown, and urchin's hands. The mother reached over and opened the package impatiently, yet careful not to tear the precious paper. The red velvet jeweler's box gave her pause. She had never held such a thing in her hands and didn't know how to spring its catch. But she got it open on pure instinct and then took out the present. It was a heavy gold chain to be worn as a necklace, and it awed them not only because of its obvious value, but because the gift of gold in this society was a statement of the most serious intentions. It was no less than a proposal of matrimony, or rather the signal that there was the intention to propose matrimony. They could no longer doubt the seriousness of this stranger, and they could not doubt his substance. Apollonia still had not touched her present. Her mother held it up for her to see, and she raised those long lashes for a moment, and then she looked directly at Michael, her doe-like brown eyes grave, and said, Grazia. It was the first time he had heard her voice. It had all the velvety softness of youth and shyness, and it set Michael's ears ringing. He kept looking away from her and talking to the father and mother simply because looking at her confused him so much. But he noticed that despite the conservative looseness of her dress, her body almost shone through the cloth with sheer sensuality. 
and he noticed the darkening of her skin blushing, the dark, creamy skin going darker with the blood surging to her face. Finally, Michael rose to go, and the family rose too. They said their goodbyes formally, the girl at last confronting him as they shook hands, and he felt the shock of her skin on his skin, her skin warm and rough, peasant skin. The father walked down the hill with him to his car and invited him to Sunday dinner the next week. Michael nodded, but he knew he couldn't wait a week to see the girl again. He didn't. The next day, without his shepherds, he drove to the village and sat on the garden terrace of the cafe to chat with her father. Signor Vitelli took pity on him and sent for his wife and daughter to come down to the cafe to join them. This meeting was less awkward. The girl Apollonia was less shy and spoke more. She was dressed in her everyday print frock, which suited her coloring much better. The next day, the same thing happened, only this time Apollonia was wearing the gold chain he had given her. He smiled at her then, knowing that this was a signal to him. He walked with her up the hill, her mother close behind them. But it was impossible for the two young people to keep their bodies from brushing against each other, and once Apollonia stumbled and fell against him so that he had to hold her, and her body so warm and alive in his hand started a deep wave of blood rising in his body. They could not see the mother behind them smiling because her daughter was a mountain goat and had not stumbled on this path since she was an infant in diapers, and smiling because this was the only way this young man was going to get his hands on her daughter until the marriage. This went on for two weeks. Michael brought her presence every time he came, and gradually she became less shy. But they could never meet without a chaperone being present. She was just a village girl, barely literate, with no idea of the world. But she had a freshness, an eagerness for life that, with the help of the language barrier, made her seem interesting. Everything went very swiftly at Michael's request. And because the girl was not only fascinated by him, but knew he must be rich, a wedding date was set for the Sunday two weeks away. Now Don Tomasino took a hand. He had received word from America that Michael was not subject to orders, but that all elementary precautions should be taken. So Don Tomasino appointed himself the parent of the bridegroom to ensure the presence of his own bodyguards. Carlo and Fabrizio were also members of the wedding party from Corleone, as was Dr. Taza. The bride and groom would live in Dr. Taza's villa, surrounded by its stone wall. The wedding was the usual peasant one. The villagers stood in the streets and threw flowers as the bridal party, principals and guests, went on foot from the church to the bride's home. The wedding procession pelted the neighbors with sugar-coated almonds, the traditional wedding candies, and with candies left over, made sugary white mountains on the bride's wedding bed. In this case, only a symbolic one, since the first night would be spent in the villa outside Corleone. The wedding feast went on until midnight, but bride and groom would leave before that in the Alfa Romeo. When that time came, Michael was surprised to find that the mother was coming with them to the Corleone villa at the request of the bride. The father explained. The girl was young, a virgin, a little frightened. She would need someone to talk to on the morning following her bridal night, to put her on the right track if things went wrong. These matters could sometimes get very tricky. Michael saw Apollonia looking at him with doubt in her huge doe-brown eyes. He smiled at her and nodded. And so it came about that they drove back to the villa outside Corleone with the mother-in-law in the car, but the older woman immediately put her head together with the servants of Dr. Taza, gave her daughter a hug and a kiss, and disappeared from the scene. Michael and his bride were allowed to go to their huge bedroom alone. Apollonia was still wearing her bridal costume with a cloak thrown over it. Her trunk and case had been brought up to the room from the car. On a small table was a bottle of wine and a plate of small wedding cakes. The huge canopied bed was never out of their vision. The young girl in the center of the room waited for Michael to make the first move. And now that he had her alone, now that he legally possessed her, 
Now that there was no barrier to his enjoying that body and face he had dreamed about every night, Michael could not bring himself to approach her. He watched as she took off the bridal shawl and draped it over a chair and placed the bridal crown on the small dressing table. That table had an array of perfumes and creams that Michael had had sent from Palermo. The girl tallied them with her eyes for a moment. Michael turned off the lights, thinking the girl was waiting for some darkness to shield her body while she undressed. But the Sicilian moon came through the unshuttered windows, bright as gold, and Michael went to close the shutters, but not all the way. The room would be too warm. The girl was still standing by the table, and so Michael went out of the room and down the hall to the bathroom. He and Dr. Taza and Don Tomasino had taken a glass of wine together in the garden while the women had prepared themselves for bed. He had expected to find Apollonia in her nightgown when he returned, already between the covers. He was surprised that the mother had not done this service for her daughter. Maybe Apollonia had wanted him to help her to undress, but he was certain she was too shy, too innocent for such forward behavior. Coming back into the bedroom, he found it completely dark. Someone had closed the shutters all the way. He groped his way toward the bed and could make out the shape of Apollonia's body lying under the covers, her back to him, her body curved away from him, and huddled up. He undressed and slipped naked beneath the sheets. He stretched out one hand and touched silky, naked skin. She had not put on her gown, and this boldness delighted him. Slowly, carefully, he put one hand on her shoulder and pressed her body gently so that she would turn to him. She turned slowly, and his hand touched her breast, soft, full. And then she was in his arms so quickly that their bodies came together in one line of silken electricity, and he finally had his arms around her, was kissing her warm mouth deeply, was crushing her body and breasts against him, and then rolling his body on top of hers. Her flesh and hair taut silk, now she was all eagerness, surging against him wildly in a virginal, erotic frenzy. When he entered her, she gave a little gasp and was still for just a second. And then, in a powerful forward thrust of her pelvis, she locked her satiny legs around his hips. When they came to the end, they were locked together so fiercely, straining against each other so violently, that falling away from each other was like the tremble before death. That night and the weeks that followed, Michael Corleone came to understand the premium put on virginity by socially primitive people. It was a period of sensuality that he had never before experienced, a sensuality mixed with a feeling of masculine power. Apollonia in those first days became almost his slave. Given trust, given affection, a young, full-blooded girl aroused from virginity to erotic awareness was as delicious as an exactly ripe fruit. She, on her part, brightened up the rather gloomy, masculine atmosphere of the villa. She had packed her mother off the very next day after her bridal night and presided at the communal table with bright, girlish charm. Don Tomasino dined with him every night, and Dr. Taza told all his old stories as they drank wine in the garden full of statues garlanded with blood-red flowers. And so the evenings passed pleasantly enough. At night in their bedroom, the newly married couple spent hours of feverish lovemaking. Michael could not get enough of Apollonia's beautifully sculpted body, her honey-colored skin, her huge brown eyes glowing with passion. She had a wonderfully fresh smell, a fleshy smell perfumed by her sex, yet almost sweet and unbearably aphrodisiacal. Her virginal passion matched his nuptial lust, and often it was dawn when they fell into an exhausted slumber. Sometimes, spent but not yet ready for sleep, Michael sat on the window ledge and stared at Apollonia's naked body while she slept. Her face, too, was lovely in repose. 
a perfect face he had seen before only in art books of painted Italian Madonnas, who by no stretch of the artist's skill could be thought virginal. In the first week of their marriage, they went on picnics and small trips in the Alfa Romeo. But then, Don Tomasino took Michael aside and explained that the marriage had made his presence and identity common knowledge in that part of Sicily, and precautions had to be taken against the enemies of the Corleone family, whose long arms also stretched to this island refuge. Don Tomasino put armed guards around his villa, and the two shepherds, Calo and Fabrizio, were fixtures inside the walls. So Michael and his wife had to remain on the villa grounds. Michael passed the time by teaching Apollonia to read and write English and to drive the car along the inner walls of the villa. About this time, Don Tomasino seemed to be preoccupied and poor company. He was still having trouble with the new mafia in the town of Palermo, Dr. Taza said. One night in the garden, an old village woman who worked in the house as a servant brought a dish of fresh olives and then turned to Michael and said, Is it true what everybody is saying, that you are the son of Don Corleone in New York City, the godfather? Michael saw Don Tomasino shaking his head in disgust at the general knowledge of their secret. But the old crone was looking at him in so concerned a fashion, as if it was important for her to know the truth, that Michael nodded. Do you know my father? The woman's name was Philomena, and her face was as wrinkled and brown as a walnut, her brown-stained teeth showing through the shell of her flesh. For the first time since he had been in the villa, she smiled at him. The godfather saved my life once, and my brains too. She made a gesture toward her head. She obviously wanted to say something else, so Michael smiled to encourage her. She asked, almost fearfully, Is it true that Luca Brasi is dead? Michael nodded again and was surprised at the look of release on the old woman's face. Philomena crossed herself. God forgive me, but may his soul roast in hell for eternity. Michael remembered his old curiosity about Brasi and had the sudden intuition that this woman knew the story Hagen and Sonny had refused to tell him. He poured the woman a glass of wine and made her sit down. Tell me about my father and Luca Brasi. I know some of it, but how did they become friends? And why was Brasi so devoted to my father? Don't be afraid. Come, tell me. Filomena's wrinkled face, her raisin-black eyes, turned to Don Tomasino, who in some way signaled his permission. And so Filomena passed the evening for them by telling her story. Thirty years before, Filomena had been a midwife in New York City on 10th Avenue, servicing the Italian colony. The women were always pregnant, and she prospered. She taught doctors a few things when they tried to interfere in a difficult birth. Her husband was then a prosperous grocery store owner. Dead now, poor soul, she blessed him, though he had been a card player and wencher who never thought to put aside for hard times. In any event, one cursed night thirty years ago, when all honest people were long in their beds, there came a knocking on Philomena's door. She was by no means frightened. It was the quiet hour babes prudently chose to enter safely into this sinful world. And so she dressed and opened the door. Outside, it was Luca Brasi, whose reputation even then was fearsome. It was known also that he was a bachelor. And so Philomena was immediately frightened. She thought he had come to do her husband harm, that perhaps her husband had foolishly refused Brasi some small favor. But Brasi had come on the usual errand. He told Philomena that there was a woman about to give birth, that the house was out of the neighborhood some distance away, and that she was to come with him. Philomena immediately sensed something amiss. Brasi's brutal face looked almost like that of a madman that night. He was obviously in the grip of some demon. 
She tried to protest that she attended only women whose history she knew, but he shoved a handful of green dollars in her hand and ordered her roughly to come along with him. She was too frightened to refuse. In the street was a Ford, its driver of the same feather as Luca Brasi. The drive was no more than 30 minutes to a small frame house in Long Island City right over the bridge, a two-family house, but obviously now tenanted only by Brasi and his gang. For there were some other ruffians in the kitchen playing cards and drinking. Brasi took Philomena up the stairs to a bedroom. In the bed was a young, pretty girl who looked Irish, her face painted, her hair red, and with a belly swollen like a sow. The poor girl was so frightened. When she saw Brasi, she turned her head away in terror, yes, terror, and indeed the look of hatred on Brasi's evil face was the most frightening thing she had ever seen in her life. Here Philomena crossed herself again. To make a long story short, Brasi left the room. Two of his men assisted the midwife, and the baby was born. The mother was exhausted and went into a deep sleep. Brasi was summoned, and Philomena, who had wrapped the newborn child in an extra blanket, extended the bundle to him and said, If you're the father, take her. My work is finished. Brasi glared at her, malevolent, insanity stamped on his face. Yes, I'm the father, he said, but I don't want any of that race to live. Take it down to the basement and throw it into the furnace. For a moment, Philomena thought she had not understood him properly. She was puzzled by his use of the word race. Did he mean because the girl was not Italian, or did he mean because the girl was obviously of the lowest type, a whore in short? Or did he mean that anything springing from his loins he forbade to live? And then she was sure he was making a brutal joke. She said shortly, It's your child. Do what you want. And she tried to hand him the bundle. At this time, the exhausted mother awoke and turned on her side to face them. She was just in time to see Brasi thrust violently at the bundle, crushing the newborn infant against Philomena's chest. She called out weakly, Luke, Luke, I'm sorry. And Brasi turned to face her. It was terrible, Philomena said now, so terrible. They were like two mad animals. They were not human. The hatred they bore each other blazed through the room. Nothing else, not even the newborn infant, existed for them at that moment. And yet, there was a strange passion, a bloody, demonical lust so unnatural, you knew they were damned forever. Then, Luca Brasi turned back to Philomena and said harshly, Do what I tell you. I'll make you rich. Philomena could not speak in her terror. She shook her head. Finally, she managed to whisper, You do it. You're the father. Do it, if you like. But Brasi didn't answer. Instead, he drew a knife from inside his shirt. I'll cut your throat, he said. She must have gone into shock then, because the next thing she remembered, they were all standing in the basement of the house in front of a square iron furnace. Philomena was still holding the blanketed baby, which had not made a sound. Maybe if it had cried. Maybe if I had been shrewd enough to pinch it, Philomena said, that monster would have shown mercy. One of the men must have opened the furnace door. The fire now was visible. And then she was alone with Brasi in that basement with its sweating pipes, its mousy odor. Brasi had his knife out again, and there could be no doubting that he would kill her. There were the flames. There were Brasi's eyes. His face was the gargoyle of the devil. It was not human. It was not sane. He pushed her toward the open furnace door. At this point, Philomena fell silent. She folded her bony hands in her lap and looked directly at Michael. He knew what she wanted, how she wanted to tell him, without using her voice. He asked gently, Did you do it? She nodded. 
It was only after another glass of wine and crossing herself and muttering a prayer that she continued her story. She was given a bundle of money and driven home. She understood that if she uttered a word about what had happened, she would be killed. But two days later, Brazi murdered the young Irish girl, the mother of the infant, and was arrested by the police. Philomena, frightened out of her wits, went to the godfather and told her story. He ordered her to keep silent, that he would attend to everything. At that time, Brazi did not work for Don Corleone. Before Don Corleone could set matters aright, Luca Brazi tried to commit suicide in his cell, hacking at his throat with a piece of glass. He was transferred to the prison hospital, and by the time he recovered, Don Corleone had arranged everything. The police did not have a case they could prove in court, and Luca Brasi was released. Though Don Corleone assured Filomena that she had nothing to fear from either Luca Brasi or the police, she had no peace. Her nerves were shattered, and she could no longer work at her profession. Finally, she persuaded her husband to sell the grocery store, and they returned to Italy. Her husband was a good man, had been told everything, and understood. But he was a weak man, and in Italy squandered the fortune they had both slaved in America to earn. And so, after he died, she had become a servant. So, Philomena ended her story. She had another glass of wine and said to Michael, I bless the name of your father. He always sent me money when I asked. He saved me from Brasi. Tell him I say a prayer for his soul every night, and that he shouldn't fear dying. After she had left, Michael asked Don Tomasino, Is her story true? The capo mafioso nodded, and Michael thought, no wonder nobody had wanted to tell him the story. Some story. Some Luca. The next morning, Michael wanted to discuss the whole thing with Don Tomasino, but learned that the old man had been called to Palermo by an urgent message delivered by a courier. That evening, Don Tomasino returned and took Michael aside. News had come from America, he said. News that it grieved him to tell. Santino Corleone had been killed. Chapter 24 The Sicilian sun, early morning, lemon-colored, filled Michael's bedroom. He awoke, and feeling Apollonia's satiny body against his own sleep-warm skin, made her come awake with love. When they were done, even all the months of complete possession could not stop him from marveling at her beauty and her passion. She left the bedroom to wash and dress in the bathroom down the hall. Michael, still naked, the morning sun refreshing his body, lit a cigarette and relaxed on the bed. This was the last morning they would spend in this house and the villa. Don Tomasino had arranged for him to be transferred to another town on the southern coast of Sicily. Apollonia, in the first month of pregnancy, wanted to visit with her family for a few weeks and would join him at the new hiding place after the visit. The night before, Don Tomasino had sat with Michael in the garden after Apollonia had gone to bed. The Don had been worried and tired and admitted that he was concerned about Michael's safety. Your marriage brought you into sight. I'm surprised your father hasn't made arrangements for you to go someplace else. In any case, I'm having my own troubles with the young Turks in Palermo. I've offered some fair arrangements so that they can wet their beaks more than they deserve. But those scum want everything. I can't understand their attitude. They've tried a few little tricks, but I'm not so easy to kill. They must know I'm too strong for them to hold me so cheaply. But that's the trouble with young people, no matter how talented. They don't reason things out, and they want all the water in the well. And then Don Tomasino had told Michael that the two shepherds, Fabrizio and Calo, 
would go with him as bodyguards in the Alfa Romeo. Don Tomasino would say his goodbyes tonight, since he would be off early in the morning at dawn to see to his affairs in Palermo. Also, Michael was not to tell Dr. Taza about the move, since the doctor planned to spend the evening in Palermo and might blab. Michael had known Don Tomasino was in trouble. Armed guards patrolled the walls of the villa at night, and a few faithful shepherds with their lupadas were always in the house. Don Tomasino himself went heavily armed, and a personal bodyguard attended him at all times. The morning sun was now too strong. Michael stubbed out his cigarette and put on work pants, work shirt, and the peaked cap most Sicilian men wore. Still barefooted, he leaned out his bedroom window and saw Fabrizio sitting in one of the garden chairs. Fabrizio was lazily combing his thick, dark hair. His lupata was carelessly thrown across the garden table. Michael whistled, and Fabrizio looked up to his window. Michael called down to him. Get the car. I'll be leaving in five minutes. Where's Carlo? Fabrizio stood up. His shirt was open, exposing the blue and red lines of the tattoo on his chest. Carlo is having a cup of coffee in the kitchen. Is your wife coming with you? Michael squinted down at him. It occurred to him that Fabrizio had been following Apollonia too much with his eyes the last few weeks. Not that he would dare ever to make an advance toward the wife of a friend of the Dons. In Sicily, there was no surer road to death. No, she's going home to her family first. She'll join us in a few days. He watched Fabrizio hurry into the stone hut that served as a garage for the Alfa Romeo. Michael went down the hall to wash. Apollonia was gone. She was most likely in the kitchen preparing his breakfast with her own hands to wash out the guilt she felt because she wanted to see her family one more time before going so far away to the other end of Sicily. Don Tomasino would arrange transportation for her to where Michael would be. Down in the kitchen, the old woman, Philomena, brought him his coffee and shyly bid him a goodbye. I'll remember you to my father. And she nodded. Kahlo came into the kitchen and said to Michael, The car's outside. Shall I get your bag? No, I'll get it. Where's Apollo? Kahlo's face broke into an amused grin. She's sitting in the driver's seat of the car, dying to step out of the gas. She'll be a real American woman before she gets to America. It was unheard of for one of the peasant women in Sicily to attempt driving a car. But Michael sometimes let Apollonia guide the Alfa Romeo around the inside of the villa walls. All was beside her, however, because she sometimes stepped on the gas when she meant to step on the brake. Michael said to Kahlo, Get Fabrizio and wait for me in the car. He went out of the kitchen and ran up the stairs to the bedroom. His bag was already packed. Before picking it up, he looked out the window and saw the car parked in front of the portico steps rather than the kitchen entrance. Apollonia was sitting in the car, her hands on the wheel like a child playing. Kahlo was just putting the lunch basket in the rear seat. And then Michael was annoyed to see Fabrizio disappearing through the gates of the villa on some errand outside. What the hell was he doing? He saw Fabrizio take a look over his shoulder, a look that was somehow furtive. He'd have to straighten that damn shepherd out. Michael went down the stairs and decided to go through the kitchen to see Philomena again and give her a final farewell. He asked the old woman, Is Dr. Taza still sleeping? Philomena's wrinkled face was sly. All roosters can't greet the sun. The doctor went to Palermo last night. Michael laughed. He went out the kitchen entrance, and the smell of lemon blossoms penetrated even his sinus-filled nose. He saw Apollonia wave to him from the car just ten paces up the villa's driveway, and then he realized she was motioning him to stay where he was, that she meant to drive the car to where he stood. Kahlo stood grinning beside the car, his lupata dangling in his hand. But there was still no sign of Fabrizio. At that moment, without any conscious reasoning process, everything came together in his mind, and Michael shouted to the girl, No! No! But his shout was drowned in the roar of the tremendous explosion 
as Apollonia switched on the ignition. The kitchen door shattered into fragments, and Michael was hurled along the wall of the villa for a good ten feet. Stones tumbling from the villa roof hit him on the shoulders, and one glanced off his skull as he was lying on the ground. He was conscious just long enough to see that nothing remained of the Alfa Romeo but its four wheels and the steel shafts which held them together. He came to consciousness in a room that seemed very dark and heard voices that were so low that they were pure sound rather than words. Out of animal instinct, he tried to pretend he was still unconscious, but the voices stopped and someone was leaning from a chair close to his bed, and the voice was distinct now, saying, Well, he's uh, with us uh, finally. A lamp went on, its light like white fire on his eyeballs, and Michael turned his head. It felt very heavy, numb, and then he could see the face over his bed was that of Dr. Taza. Let me look at you a minute and I'll uh, put the light out. He was busy shining a small pencil flashlight into Michael's eyes. He'll be all right. Dr. Taza turned to someone else in the room. You can uh, speak to him. It was Don Tomasino sitting on a chair near his bed. Michael could see him clearly now. Michael? Michael, can I talk to you? Do you want to rest? It was easier to raise a hand to make a gesture, and Michael did so, and Don Tomasino said, Did Fabrizio bring the car from the garage? Michael, without knowing he did so, smiled. It was in some strange way a chilling smile of assent. Fabrizio has vanished. Listen to me, Michael. You've been unconscious for nearly a week. Do you understand? Everybody thinks you're dead, so you're safe now. They've stopped looking for you. I've sent messages to your father, and he sent back instructions. It won't be long now. You'll be back in America. Meanwhile, you'll rest here, quietly. You're safe up in the mountains in a special farmhouse I own. The Palermo people have made their peace with me, now that you are supposed to be dead. So it was you they were after all the time. They wanted to kill you while making people think it was me they were after. That's something you should know. As for everything else, leave it all to me. You recover your strength and be tranquil. Michael was remembering everything now. He knew his wife was dead, that Kahlo was dead. He thought of the old woman in the kitchen. He couldn't remember if she'd come outside with him. He whispered, Philomena? She wasn't hurt. Just a bloody nose from the blast. Don't worry about her. Fabrizio, let your shepherds know that the one who gives me Fabrizio will own the finest pastures in Sicily. Both men seemed to sigh with relief. Don Tomasino lifted a glass from a nearby table and drank from it an amber fluid that jolted his head up. Dr. Taza sat on the bed. You know, uh, you're a widow. That's rare in Sicily. As if the distinction might comfort him. Michael motioned to Don Tomasino to lean closer. The Don sat on the bed and bent his head. Tell my father to get me home. Tell my father I wish to be his son. But it was to be another month before Michael recovered from his injuries, and another two months after that before all the necessary papers and arrangements were ready. Then he was flown from Palermo to Rome and from Rome to New York. In all that time, no trace had been found of Fabrizio. Book 7 
Chapter 25 When Kay Adams received her college degree, she took a job teaching grade school in her New Hampshire hometown. The first six months after Michael vanished, she made weekly telephone calls to his mother asking about him. Mrs. Corleone was always friendly and always wound up saying, You were very, very nice a girl. You forget about Mikey and find a nicer husband. Kay was not offended at her bluntness and understood that the mother spoke out of concern for her as a young girl in an impossible situation. When her first school term ended, she decided to go to New York to buy some decent clothes and see some old college girlfriends. She thought also about looking for some sort of interesting job in New York. She had lived like a spinster for almost two years, reading and teaching, refusing dates, refusing to go out at all, even though she had given up making calls to Long Beach. She knew she couldn't keep that up. She was becoming irritable and unhappy. But she had always believed Michael would write her or send her a message of some sort. That he had not done so humiliated her. It saddened her that he was so distrustful, even of her. She took an early train and was checked into her hotel by mid-afternoon. Her girlfriends worked, and she didn't want to bother them at their jobs. She planned to call them at night. And she didn't really feel like going shopping after the exhausting train trip. Being alone in the hotel room, remembering all the times she and Michael had used hotel rooms to make love, gave her a feeling of desolation. It was that, more than anything else, that gave her the idea of calling Michael's mother out in Long Beach. The phone was answered by a rough, masculine voice with a typical, to her, New York accent. Kay asked to speak to Mrs. Corleone. There was a few minutes' silence, and then Kay heard the heavily accented voice asking who it was. Kay was a little embarrassed now. This is Kay Adams, Mrs. Corleone. Do you remember me? Sure, sure I remember you. How come you no call up no more? You get married. Oh, no. I've been busy. She was surprised at the mother obviously being annoyed that she had stopped calling. Have you heard anything from Michael? Is he all right? There was silence at the other end of the phone, and then Mrs. Corleone's voice came strong. Mikey is home. He no call you up. He no see you. Kate felt her stomach go weak from shock and a humiliating desire to weep. Her voice broke a little when she asked, How long has he been home? Six months. Oh, I see. And she did. She felt hot waves of shame that Michael's mother knew he was treating her so cheaply. And then she was angry. Angry at Michael, at his mother, angry at all foreigners, Italians who didn't have the common courtesy to keep up a decent show of friendship, even if a love affair was over. Didn't Michael know she would be concerned for him as a friend, even if he no longer wanted her for a bed companion, even if he no longer wanted to marry her? Did he think she was one of those poor, benighted Italian girls who would commit suicide or make a scene after giving up her virginity and then being thrown over? But she kept her voice as cool as possible. I see. Thank you very much. I'm glad Michael's home again and all right. I just wanted to know. I won't call you again. Mrs. Corleone's voice came impatiently over the phone, as if she had heard nothing that Kay had said. You want to see Mikey? You come out here now. Give him a nice surprise. You take a taxi and tell the man at the gate to pay the taxi for you. You tell the taxi man he gets two times his clock. Otherwise, he don't come way out of Long Beach. But don't you pay. My husband's a man at the gate pay the taxi. I couldn't do that, Mrs. Corleone. If Michael wanted to see me, he would have called me at home before this. 
Obviously, he doesn't want to resume our relationship. You are very nice, girl. You got a nice legs, but you no got a much brains. She chuckled. You come out to see me, not Mikey. I want to talk to you. You come right now, and no pay the taxi. I wait for you. The phone clicked. Mrs. Corleone had hung up. Kay could have called back and said she wasn't coming, but she knew she had to see Michael to talk to him, even if it was just polite talk. If he was home now, openly, that meant he was no longer in trouble. He could live normally. She jumped off the bed and started to get ready to see him. She took a great deal of care with her makeup and dress. When she was ready to leave, she stared at her reflection in the mirror. Was she better looking than when Michael had disappeared, or would he find her unattractively older? Her figure had become more womanly. Her hips rounder. Her breasts fuller. Italians like that supposedly, though Michael had always said he loved her being so thin. It didn't matter really. Michael obviously didn't want anything to do with her anymore. Otherwise, he most certainly would have called in the six months he had been home. The taxi she hailed refused to take her to Long Beach until she gave him a pretty smile and told him she would pay double the meter. It was nearly an hour's ride, and the mall in Long Beach had changed since she last saw it. There were iron fences around it, and an iron gate barred the mall entrance. A man wearing slacks and a white jacket over a red shirt opened the gate, poked his head into the cab to read the meter, and gave the cab driver some bills. Then, when Kay saw the driver was not protesting and was happy with the money paid, she got out and walked across the mall to the central house. Mrs. Corleone herself opened the door and greeted Kay with a warm embrace that surprised her. Then she surveyed Kay with an appraising eye. You are beautiful, girl. I have a stupid sons. She pulled Kay inside the door and led her to the kitchen, where a platter of food was already set out. And a pot of coffee perked on the stove. Michael comes home pretty soon. You surprise him. They sat down together, and the old woman forced Kay to eat. Meanwhile, asking questions with great curiosity, she was delighted that Kay was a schoolteacher and that she had come to New York to visit old girlfriends, and that Kay was only twenty-four years old. She kept nodding her head as if all the facts accorded with some private specifications in her mind. Kay was so nervous that she just answered the questions, never saying anything else. She saw him first through the kitchen window. A car pulled up in front of the house, and two other men got out. Then, Michael. He straightened up to talk with one of the other men. His profile, the left one, was exposed to her view. It was cracked, indented, like the plastic face of a doll that a child has wantonly kicked. In a curious way, it did not mar his handsomeness in her eyes. But moved her to tears. She saw him put a snow-white handkerchief to his mouth and nose, and hold it there for a moment while he turned away to come into the house. She heard the door open and his footsteps in the hall, turning into the kitchen, and then he was in the open space, seeing her and his mother. He seemed impassive, and then he smiled ever so slightly, the broken half of his face halting the widening of his mouth. And Kay, who had meant just to say, "Hello." How are you? In the coolest possible way, slipped out of her seat to run into his arms, bury her face against his shoulder. He kissed her wet cheek and held her until she finished weeping, and then he walked her out to his car, waved his bodyguard away, and drove off with her beside him. She repairing her makeup by simply wiping what was left of it away with her handkerchief. I never meant to do that. It's just that nobody told me how badly they hurt you. Michael laughed and touched the broken side of his face. You mean this? That's nothing. 
just gives me sinus trouble. Now that I'm home, I'll probably get it fixed. I couldn't write you or anything. You, you have to understand that before anything else. Okay. I've got a place in the city. Is it all right if we go there, or should it be dinner and drinks at a restaurant? I'm not hungry. They drove toward New York in silence for a while. Did you get your degree? Yes. I'm teaching grade school in my hometown now. Did they find the man who really killed the policeman? Is that why you were able to come home? For a moment, Michael didn't answer. Yes, they did. It was in all the New York papers. Didn't you read about it? Kay laughed with the relief of him denying he was a murderer. We only get the New York Times up in our town. I guess it was buried back in page 89. If I'd read about it, I'd have called your mother sooner. She paused and then said, It's funny, the way your mother used to talk. I almost believed you'd done it. And just before you came, while we were drinking coffee, she told me about that crazy man who confessed. Maybe my mother did believe it at first. Your own mother? Michael grinned. Mothers are like cops. They always believe the worst. Michael parked the car in a garage on Mulberry Street, where the owner seemed to know him. He took Kay around the corner to what looked like a fairly decrepit brownstone house, which fitted into the rundown neighborhood. Michael had a key to the front door, and when they went inside, Kay saw that it was as expensively and comfortably furnished as a millionaire's townhouse. Michael led her to the upstairs apartment, which consisted of an enormous living room, a huge kitchen and door that led to the bedroom. In one corner of the living room was a bar, and Michael mixed them both a drink. They sat on a sofa together, and Michael said quietly, We might as well go into the bedroom. Kay took a long pull from her drink and smiled at him. Yes. For Kay, the lovemaking was almost like it had been before, except that Michael was rougher, more direct, not as tender as he had been, as if he were on guard against her. But she didn't want to complain. It would wear off. In a funny way, men were more sensitive in a situation like this, she thought. She had found making love to Michael after a two-year absence the most natural thing in the world. It was as if he had never been away. You could have written me. You could have trusted me, she said, nestling against his body. I would have practiced the New England omerta. Yankees are pretty closed-mouthed, too, you know. Michael laughed softly in the darkness. I never figured you'd be waiting. I never figured you'd wait after what happened. I never believed you killed those two men. Except maybe when your mother seemed to think so. But I never believed it in my heart. I know you too well. She could hear Michael give a sigh. It doesn't matter whether I did or not. You have to understand that. Kay was a little stunned by the coldness in his voice. So just tell me now, did you or didn't you? Michael sat up on his pillow, and in the darkness a light flared as he got a cigarette going. If I asked you to marry me, would I have to answer that question first before you'd give me an answer to mine? I don't care. I love you. I don't care. If you loved me, you wouldn't be afraid to tell me the truth. You wouldn't be afraid I might tell the police. That's it, isn't it? You're really a gangster, then. Isn't that so? But I really don't care. What I care about is that you obviously don't love me. You didn't even call me up when you got back home. Michael was puffing on his cigarette, and some burning ashes fell on Kay's bare back. She flinched a little. Stop torturing me. I won't talk. Michael didn't laugh. His voice sounded absent-minded. You know, when I came home, I wasn't that glad when I saw my family, my father, my mother, my sister Connie, and, and Tom. It was nice, but I didn't really give a damn. Then I came home tonight, and I saw you in the kitchen, and I was glad. Is that what you mean by love? That's close enough for me. They made love again for a while. Michael was more tender this time, and then he went out to get them both a drink. When he came back, he sat on an armchair facing the bed. Let's get serious. How do you feel about marrying me? Kay smiled at him and motioned him into the bed. 
Michael smiled back at her. Be serious. I can't tell you about anything that happened. I'm working for my father now. I'm being trained to take over the family olive oil business. But you know my family has enemies. My father has enemies. You might be a very young widow. There's a chance, not much of one, but it could happen. And I won't be telling you what happened at the office every day. I won't be telling you anything about my business. You'll be my wife, but you won't be my partner in life, as I think they say. Not an equal partner. That can't be. Kay sat up in bed. She switched on a huge lamp standing on the night table, and then she lit a cigarette. She leaned back on the pillows. You're telling me you're a gangster, isn't that it? You're telling me that you're responsible for people being killed and other sundry crimes related to murder, and that I'm not ever to ask about that part of your life, not even to think about it, just like in the horror movies when the monster asked the beautiful girl to marry him. Michael grinned. The cracked part of his face turned toward her. And Kay said, in contrition, Oh, Mike, I don't even notice that stupid thing. I swear I don't. I know. I like having it now, except that it makes the snot drip out of my nose. You said be serious. If we get married, what kind of a life am I supposed to lead? Like your mother? Like an Italian housewife with just the kids and home to take care of? And what about if something happens? I suppose you could wind up in jail someday. No, that's not possible. Killed, yes. Jail, no. Kay laughed at this confidence. It was a laugh that had a funny mixture of pride with its amusement. But how can you say that? Really? Michael sighed. These are all the things I can't talk to you about. I don't want to talk to you about. Kay was silent for a long time. Why do you want me to marry you after never calling me all these months? Am I so good in bed? Michael nodded gravely. Sure. But I'm getting it for nothing, so why should I marry you for that? Look, I don't want an answer now. We're going to keep seeing each other. You can talk it over with your parents. I hear your father's a real tough guy in his own way. Listen to his advice. You haven't answered why. Why you want to marry me. Michael took a white handkerchief from the drawer of the night table and held it to his nose. He blew into it and then wiped. That's the best reason for not marrying me. How would that be, having a guy around who always has to blow his nose? Come on, be serious. I asked you a question. Michael held the handkerchief in his hand. Okay, this one time. You're the only person I felt any affection for that I care about. I didn't call you because it never occurred to me that you'd still be interested in me after everything that's happened. Sure, I could have chased you, I could have conned you, but I didn't want to do that. Now here's something I'll trust you with, and I don't want you to repeat it even to your father. If everything goes right, the Corleone family will be completely legitimate in about five years. Some very tricky things have to be done to make that possible. That's when you may become a wealthy widow. Now, what do I want you for? Well, because I want you, and I want a family. I want kids. It's time. And I don't want those kids to be influenced by me the way I was influenced by my father. I don't mean my father deliberately influenced me. He never did. He never even wanted me in the family business. He wanted me to become a professor or a doctor, something like that. But things went bad, and I had to fight for my family. I had to fight because I love and admire my father. I never knew a man more worthy of respect. He was a good husband and a good father and a good friend to people who are not so fortunate in life. There's another side to him, but that's not relevant to me as his son. Anyway, I don't want that to happen to my kids. I want them to be influenced by you. I want them to grow up to be all-American kids, real all-American, the whole works. Maybe they or their grandchildren will go into politics. Michael grinned. Maybe one of them will be president of the United States. Why the hell not? 
In my history course at Dartmouth, we did some background on all the presidents, and they had fathers and grandfathers who were lucky they didn't get hanged. But I'll settle for my kids being doctors or musicians or teachers. They'll never be in the family business. By the time they're that old, I'll be retired anyway. And you and I will be part of some country club crowd, the good, simple life of well-to-do Americans. How does that strike you for proposition? Marvelous. But you sort of skipped over the widow part. There's not much chance of that. I just mentioned it to give you a fair presentation. Michael patted his nose with a handkerchief. I can't believe it. I can't believe you're a man like that. You're just not. Her face had a bewildered look. I just don't understand the whole thing, how it could possibly be. Well, I'm not giving any more explanations. You know, you don't have to think about any of this stuff. It has nothing to do with you, really, or with our life together if we get married. Kay shook her head. How can you want to marry me? How can you hint that you love me? You never say the word, but you just now said you loved your father. You never said you loved me. How could you, if you distrust me so much, you can't tell me about the most important things in your life? How can you want to have a wife you can't trust? Your father trusts your mother, I know that. Sure, but that doesn't mean he tells her everything. And you know, he has reason to trust her, not because they got married and she's his wife, but she bore him four children in times when it was not that safe to bear children. She nursed and guarded him when people shot him. She believed in him. He was always her first loyalty for 40 years. After you do that, maybe I'll tell you a few things you really don't want to hear. Will we have to live in the mall? Michael nodded. We'll have our own house. It won't be so bad. My parents don't meddle. Our lives will be our own. But until everything gets straightened out, I have to live in the mall. Because it's dangerous for you to live outside it. For the first time since she had come to know him, she saw Michael angry. It was cold, chilling anger that was not externalized in any gesture or change in voice. It was a coldness that came off him like death, and Kay knew that it was this coldness that would make her decide not to marry him, if she so decided. The trouble is all that damned trash in the movies and the newspapers. You've got the wrong idea of my father and the Corleone family. I'll make a final explanation, and this one will be really final. My father is a businessman trying to provide for his wife and children and those friends he might need someday in a time of trouble. He doesn't accept the rules of the society we live in because those rules would have condemned him to a life not suitable to a man like himself, a man of extraordinary force and character. What you have to understand is that he considers himself the equal of all those great men like presidents and prime ministers and supreme court justices and governors of the states. He refuses to accept their will over his own. He refuses to live by rules set up by others, rules which condemn him to a defeated life. His ultimate aim is to enter that society with a certain power, since society doesn't really protect its members who do not have their own individual power. In the meantime, he operates on a code of ethics he considers far superior to the legal structures of society. Kay was looking at him incredulously. But that's ridiculous. What if everybody felt the same way? How could society ever function? We'd be back in the times of the cavemen. Mike, you don't believe what you're saying, do you? Michael grinned at her. I'm just telling you what my father believes. I just want you to understand that whatever else he is, he's not irresponsible, or at least not in the society which he has created. He's not a crazy machine-gunning mobster, as you seem to think. He's a responsible man in his own way. And what do you believe? Michael shrugged. I believe in my family. I believe in you and the family we may have. I don't trust society to protect us. I have no intention of placing my fate in the hands of men whose only qualification is that they manage to con a block of people to vote for them. But that's for now. 
My father's time is done. The things he did can no longer be done except with a great deal of risk. Whether we like it or not, the Corleone family has to join that society. But when they do, I'd like us to join it with plenty of our own power, that is, money and ownership of other valuables. I'd like to make my children as secure as possible before they join that general destiny. But you volunteered to fight for your country. You were a war hero. What happened to make you change? This is really getting us no place. But maybe I'm just one of those real old-fashioned conservatives that grow up in your hometown. I take care of myself, individual. Governments really don't do much for their people. That's what it comes down to. But that's not it, really. All I can say, I have to help my father. I have to be on his side. And you have to make your decision about being on my side. He smiled at her. I guess getting married was a bad idea. Kay patted the bed. I don't know about marrying, but I've gone without a man for two years, and I'm not letting you off so easy now. Come on in here. When they were in bed together, the light out, she whispered to him. Do you believe me about not having a man since you left? I believe you. Did you? Yes. He felt her stiffen a little. But not in the last six months. It was true. Kay was the first woman he had made love to since the death of Apollonia. Chapter 26 The garish suite overlooked the fake fairyland grounds in the rear of the hotel, transplanted palm trees lit up by climbers of orange lights, two huge swimming pools shimmering dark blue by the light of the desert stars. On the horizon were the sand and stone mountains that ringed Las Vegas, nestling in its neon valley. Johnny Fontaine let the heavy, richly embroidered gray drape fall and turned back to the room. A special detail of four men, a pit boss, a dealer, extra relief man, and a cocktail waitress in her scanty nightclub costume were getting things ready for private action. Nino Valenti was lying on the sofa in the living room part of the suite, a water glass of whiskey in his hand. He watched the people from the casino setting up the blackjack table with the proper six padded chairs around its horseshoe outer rim. He said in a slurred voice that was not quite drunken, That's great, that's great. Johnny, come on and gamble with me against these bastards. I got the luck. We'll beat their crullers in. Johnny sat on a footstool opposite the couch. You know I don't gamble. How you feeling, Nino? Nino Valenti grinned at him. Great. I got broads coming up at midnight, then some supper, then back to the blackjack table. You know, I got the house beat for almost 50 grand, and they've been grinding me for a week. Yeah. Who do you want to leave it to when you croak? Nino drained his glass empty. Johnny, where the hell do you get your rep as a swinger? You're a deadhead, Johnny. Christ, the tourists in this town have more fun than you do. Yeah. You want a lift to that blackjack table? Nino struggled erect on the sofa and planted his feet firmly on the rug. I can make it. He let the glass slip to the floor and got up and walked quite steadily to where the blackjack table had been set up. The dealer was ready. The pit boss stood behind the dealer, watching. The relief dealer sat on a chair away from the table. The cocktail waitress sat on another chair in a line of vision so that she could see any of Nino Valenti's gestures. Nino wrapped on the green baize with his knuckles. Chips. The pit boss took a pad from his pocket and filled out a slip and put it in front of Nino with a small fountain pen. Here you are, Mr. Valenti, the usual 5,000 to start. Nino scrawled his signature on the bottom of the slip, and the pit boss put it in his pocket. He nodded to the dealer. The dealer, with incredibly deft fingers, took stacks of black and gold $100 chips from the built-in racks before him. In not more than five seconds, Nino had five even stacks of $100 chips before him. Each stack had ten chips. 
There were six squares, a little larger than playing card shapes, etched in white on the green bays, each square placed to correspond to where a player would sit. Now, Nino was placing bets on three of these squares, single chips, and so playing three hands each for $100. He refused to take a hit on all three hands because the dealer had a six-up, a bust card, and the dealer did bust. Nino raked in his chips and turned to Johnny Fontaine. That's how to start the night, huh, Johnny? Johnny smiled. It was unusual for a gambler like Nino to have to sign a chit while gambling. A word was usually good enough for the high rollers. Maybe they were afraid Nino wouldn't remember his takeout because of his drinking. They didn't know that Nino remembered everything. Nino kept winning, and after the third round, lifted a finger at the cocktail waitress. She went to the bar at the end of the room and brought him his usual rye in a water glass. Nino took the drink, switched it to his other hand so he could put an arm around the waitress. Sit with me, honey. Play a few hands. Bring me luck. The cocktail waitress was a very beautiful girl, but Johnny could see she was all cold hustle, no real personality, though she worked at it. She was giving Nino a big smile, but her tongue was hanging out for one of those black and gold chips. What the hell, Johnny thought. Why shouldn't she get some of it? He just regretted that Nino wasn't getting something better for his money. Nino let the waitress play his hands for a few rounds and then gave her one of the chips and a pat on the behind to send her away from the table. Johnny motioned to her to bring him a drink. She did so, but she did it as if she were playing the most dramatic moment in the most dramatic movie ever made. She turned all her charm on the great Johnny Fontaine. She made her eyes sparkle with invitation. Her walk was the sexiest walk ever walked. Her mouth was very slightly parted, as if she were ready to bite the nearest object of her obvious passion. She resembled nothing so much as a female animal in heat, but it was a deliberate act. Johnny Fontaine thought, Ah, oh, Christ, one of them. It was the most popular approach of women who wanted to take him to bed. It only worked when he was very drunk, and he wasn't drunk now. He gave the girl one of his famous grins. Thank you, honey. The girl looked at him and parted her lips in a thank you smile. Her eyes went all smoky, her body tensed with a torso leaning slightly back from the long, tapering legs in their mesh stockings. An enormous tension seemed to be building up in her body. Her breasts seemed to grow fuller and swell burstingly against her thin, scantily cut blouse. Then her whole body gave a slight quiver that almost let off a sexual twang. The whole impression was one of a woman having an orgasm simply because Johnny Fontaine had smiled at her and said, Thank you, honey. It was very well done. It was done better than Johnny had ever seen it done before, but by now he knew it was fake and the odds were always good that the broads who did it were a lousy lay. He watched her go back to her chair and nursed his drink slowly. He didn't want to see that little trick again. He wasn't in the mood for it tonight. It was an hour before Nino Valenti began to go. He started leaning first, wavered back, then plunged off the chair straight to the floor. But the pit boss and the relief dealer had been alerted by the first weave and caught him before he hit the ground. They lifted him and carried him through the parted drapes that led to the bedroom of the suite. Johnny kept watching as the cocktail waitress helped the other two men undress Nino and shove him under the bed covers. The pit boss was counting Nino's chips and making a note on his pad of chits, then guarding the table with its dealer's chips. Johnny said to him, How long has that been going on? The pit boss shrugged. He went early tonight. The first time we got the house dock and he fixed Mr. Valenti up with something and gave him some sort of a lecture. Then Nino told us that we shouldn't call the dock when that happened. Just put him to bed and he'd be okay in the morning. So that's what we do. He's pretty lucky. He was a winner again tonight. Almost three grand. Well, let's get the house dock up here tonight, okay? Page the casino floor if you have to. It was almost 15 minutes before Jules Siegel came into the suite. 
Johnny noted with irritation that this guy never looked like a doctor. Tonight he was wearing a blue, loose-knit polo shirt with white trim, some sort of white suede shoes and no socks. He looked funny as hell carrying the traditional black doctor's bag. Johnny said, You ought to figure out a way to carry your stuff in a cut-down golf bag. Jules grinned understandingly. Yeah, this medical school carry-all is a real drag. Scares the hell out of people. They should change the color anyway. He went over to where Nino was lying in bed. As he opened his bag, he said to Johnny, Thanks for that check you sent me as a consultant. It was excessive. I didn't do that much. Like hell you didn't. Anyway, forget that. That was a long time ago. What's with Nino? Jules was making a quick examination of heartbeat, pulse, and blood pressure. He took a needle out of his bag and shoved it casually into Nino's arm and pressed the plunger. Nino's sleeping face lost its waxy paleness. Color came into the cheeks, as if the blood had started pumping faster. Very simple diagnosis. I had a chance to examine him and run some tests when he first came here and fainted. I had him moved to the hospital before he regained consciousness. He's got diabetes, mild adult stabile, which is no problem if you take care of it with medication and diet and so forth. He insists on ignoring it. Also, he is firmly determined to drink himself to death. His liver is going, and his brain will go. Right now he's in a mild diabetic coma. My advice is to have him put away. Johnny felt a sense of relief. It couldn't be too serious. All Nino had to do was take care of himself. You mean in one of those joints where they dry you out? Jules went over to the bar in the far corner of the room and made himself a drink. No, I mean committed. You know, the crazy house. Don't be funny. I'm not joking. I'm not up on all the psychiatric jazz, but I know something about it, part of my trade. Your friend Nino can be put back into fairly good shape unless the liver damage has gone too far, which we can't know until an autopsy, really. But the real disease is in his head. In essence, he doesn't care if he dies. Maybe he even wants to kill himself. Until that is cured, there's no hope for him. That's why I say have him committed, and then he can undergo the necessary psychiatric treatment. There was a knock on the door, and Johnny went to answer it. It was Lucy Mancini. She came into Johnny's arms and kissed him. Oh, Johnny, it's so good to see you. It's been a long time. He noticed that Lucy had changed. She had gotten much slimmer. Her clothes were a hell of a lot better, and she wore them better. Her hairstyle fitted her face in a sort of boyish cut. She looked younger and better than he had ever seen her, and the thought crossed his mind that she could keep him company here in Vegas. It would be a pleasure hanging out with a real broad. But before he could turn on the charm, he remembered she was the doc's girl. So it was out. He made his smile just friendly and said, What are you doing coming to Nino's apartment at night, eh? She punched him in the shoulder. I heard Nino was sick, and the jewels came up. I just wanted to see if I could help. Nino's okay, isn't he? Sure, he'll be fine. Jules Siegel had sprawled out on the couch. Like hell he is. I suggest we all sit here and wait for Nino to come too, and then we all talk him into committing himself. Lucy, he likes you. Maybe you can help. Johnny, if you're a real friend of his, you'll go along. Otherwise, old Nino's liver will shortly be Exhibit A in some university medical lab. Johnny was offended by the doctor's flippant attitude. Who the hell did he think he was? He started to say so, but Nino's voice came from the bed. Hey, old buddy, how about a drink? Nino was sitting up in bed. He grinned at Lucy. Hey, baby, come to old Nino. He held his arms wide open. Lucy sat on the edge of the bed and gave him a hug. Oddly enough, Nino didn't look bad at all now, almost normal. Nino snapped his fingers. Come on, Johnny, give me a drink. The night's young yet. Where the hell's my blackjack table? Jules took a long slug from his own glass and said to Nino, You can't have a drink. Your doctor forbids it. Nino scowled. Screw my doctor. Then a play-acting look of contrition came on his face. Hey, Julie, that's you. 
You're my doctor, right? I don't mean you, old buddy. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.